Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome back to <laughs> The Iron List. This is the podcast where we do lists here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William DeBiani. I am a critic. I write for The Wrap. I write for The Film Verdict. I write for Slash Film. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I write for Slash Film, and that's all. That's all you need, wrote, baby. Wrote two, two reviews today, which is nice. When you write as good as Whitney Seibold, one outlet is all you need. Well, when, when you write as quickly as I do, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> quickly uh, and effectively. Uh, that's the hope, that it's quickly yeah. and effectively. Although, sometimes I'll look back over some of my old stuff, and the editors don't catch when I, like, use a word twice in a sentence. Oh, I hate it when Something that happens. Something like that, like... Oh, that's mm. death. Oh, it's the absolute worst. So like f- future events such as these will affect you in the future, that yeah. kind of stuff. And little things like that, and you don't think about it when you're writing them, and then you look like, at it the next day and you realize, this is all close. shit now. Yeah, Everything uh, I wrote is shit now. I, uh, yeah. I wrote a review recently of a film called The Equalizer 3. Yeah. Uh, it's Denzel Washington film, directed by Antoine Fuqua. Uh, and as it so happens, I also wrote a review of The Equalizer 2, uh-huh. For a different outlet back when it came out in 2018. I remember. And I went back and read my review just to sort of catch myself up and re- remind mm. myself of what happened in that movie. And um, 2018, I wrote like shit. It's like, <laughs> I'm so embarrassed oh. by, by some of my older reviews. Oh, the worst part is actually when you go back to your older reviews and you realize they're better than you right now. That, sometimes I encounter that too. And it's I'm like, like, oh my God, so when like did I turn into a <laughs> Oh God, my thoughts were like clearer and more sophisticated. I was such a rebel. Oh, God. Anyway, that is neither here nor there. That's not what we're here today. The lesson I'm learning, well, this is for other writers who may be listening, uh, is that you are good and bad alternately throughout. (laughs) (laughs) You can write badly and write well in the past, and you can write badly and write well now. The point is, if there's a gradual upward slope, like some progress over time... Then you're you're probably good. Yeah. Important important thing is keep writing. You'll get there. But uh, anyway, this is the Iron List. This is the podcast. It's a monthly show where our patrons over at Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network get to vote for a topic, and then Whitney and I, professional film critics, as you may have noticed, we present our picks for the top ten in that category. Uh, we each come up with our own list, and we do not discuss it in advance. Nope. Not. One jot, not we, one we, tittle. We don't even agree on uh, like some sort of standard. No, by the what criteria. we're going to go by, we we have our we own never criteria. Bring it up. Yeah. So uh, this month on the Iron List, uh, the topic uh, was it's a fun one. They're all fun ones, but I like this one a lot. Uh, the best box office bombs, movies mm. that flopped rather notoriously yes. at the box office. Not just movies that like broke even and didn't do great. But like the ones that are like, oh man, what a, what a stinker! Like I just like they they carry this like cloak of shame around them. A lot of them, but they're just and sometimes <laughs> well, that's the only thing people remember about them is that they that, lost yeah, money, they, whether they, or not they they're lost good. A lot of money. Um, and a, a film's success. I've I've said this for years. Mm-hmm. And you know, success and popularity are mutually exclusive concepts. They rarely have anything to do with one another. Well, there are great films that bomb. There are terrible films that are huge hits. And even uh, films that like have like good word of mouth, mm-hmm. 
that word of mouth doesn't last forever. Eventually, no. years later, people won't even remember that. And you know, a lot of people like to point to you know high quality films. Oh, it's like it's weird circumstances led to its box box office failure, mm-hmm. or uh, the the audience wasn't ready for it yet, or you know, the mm-hmm. audience was too sick of this one kind of movie, so they didn't go yeah. to this other kind of. This movie. actor had um, some stuff going on, and people weren't interested but, uh, in watching them anymore. All of those arguments are mm-hmm. based on some kind of weird assumption Mm -hmm. that great films deserve success Mm -hmm. and that's not true Uh, it's all circumstances every every film that is successful nobody ever says this terrible film was successful why like it's really rare that you'll you'll see Mm -hmm. think pieces unless it's something like um What's that uh, human trafficking movie that's really big right now? Oh, Sound um, of Freedom. Sound of Freedom yeah. is, is this big. It's earning a lot of money at the box office, but it's more through donations than it is actual yeah. ticket sales. Like, people are actually buying up tickets, and they're not even, like, people going to the theater. Mm. They're just people with a lot of extra money yeah, who there's... want to support this film buying the tickets. And, yeah, the movie is making money, but is that really a sign of its popularity? Yeah, so po- popularity, success, it it's... No film is destined to become successful. True. Uh, some are pretty good bets. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you know, the 10th the film in a, a long series where the previous nine were all hits, you can mm-hmm. probably bet that one's going to be pretty big as well. And yet, uh, Fast 10. But not necessarily. <laughs> Fast 10. Everything was, yeah. the, all the previous films were really huge. And then, yeah, yeah the 10th one came along. Not so not so big. Uh, Avengers Endgame. I would have been surprised if it bombed. Oh, yeah, that would have been uh, a big surprise. Uh, that, that movie would have had to do something really shitty for people to like. Mm-hmm. People would see it opening weekend and then go, "No one go again." Or, or like, just yeah. in, maybe interest somehow waned. It's like, oh, I saw that one. I'm bored now. Mm-hmm. I don't need to see how that one ends. Well, I would argue the interest has kind of waned afterwards because now that has, felt like yeah. such an ending. It was to called everything. Endgame. Yeah, it, yeah it so, felt like, so like they have they've struggled to been, like start it uh, up again. You yeah, know? we're on what. Film number thirty one or thirty two in that series, or 32, yeah. and, and yeah, then oh, not including and, TV. And Endgame was shit. the was the nineteenth, so we, we've had a lot of movies since then. And yeah, it's wild. Just not not hitting it. Anyway, but, uh, the one thing I'll disagree with you there is uh, that the, some movies don't deserve success. I think good movies. It would be nice to be able to say that you know a good mm-hmm. movie should find an audience. Yeah, I think in a perfect well, world that would be nice. But of course, it's subjective. Yeah, and of course, it's an imperfect world, and there there are no guarantees. And some great movies make no money. And some bad movies make lots of money. And most movies just do okay, and we never talk about their finances ever. Uh, It's a pity that we think about finances at all. Yeah. uh, As film critics. Uh, And in fact, when I write a review, I don't give a shit about its success. Generally speaking, Uh, yes. I don't... don't, I hope people see it because I like people to watch great art. Yeah. Uh, I don't care that a studio is making money from we it. We have no vested and, interest in this. And the people who say, well, I want this film to be successful because I want other films like it to be made. Mm-hmm. I want sequels is kind of kind of a, a, a creatively bankrupt way of thinking about it. Uh, mm-hmm. I want a sequel to this. So you want the same thing again. Might just be... Enjoy what we have, and if it's not enough that you need more, then clearly there's something deficient in what you just saw. I think that comes uh, from this mentality that movies are, like, a very finite resource. Yeah. That, like, if we don't support every single DC movie, mm. they won't they won't them, make yeah. any superhero movies anymore, and they will. And even if some things go out of fashion, there are new fashions that are just as exciting. Well, I'm interested in maybe, movies as a whole. Maybe you will also fall out of uh, that fashion. You won't yeah. want that anymore. Yeah. Uh, so, 
uh, I'm going to be talking about a lot of movies here mm-hmm. that I thought were quite good. Yeah. Uh, in most cases, they were all expensive, so they actually lost a lot of money. That was yeah. kind of one of my personal criteria. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about your criteria. Uh, so they had to be expensive. They, they had to be expensive. They had to be like notable losses. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, at least from my memory, or at least from what I uh, read about, right. Uh, just didn't make a lot. Which means I'm going to be talking about movies that were released in my lifetime. Yeah, uh, I, I was there for it. So there's actually yeah. some personal experience with all of these movies. Uh, I know that there were there have been bombs since as long as there's been a business. Right. Uh, I know something like It's a Wonderful Life was notoriously unsuccessful when right. it was first released. Um, the other thing is, all of my choices uh, haven't found their audience. Yeah, that's there important were, to me too. There were a lot of movies that have that were released and were uh, that tanked upon their initial release. A lot of people like to point to something like The Thing, the John Carpenter movie from 1982. Because mm-hmm. uh, that came on the heels of E.T. Oh, same month. Uh, people that were not interested in the, in people, the evil yeah. aliens so that month. People liked the sort of warm Spielbergian alien and weren't so interested in sort yeah. of the, the nihilistic alien movie. And uh, despite its great special effects. And... Over the years, it's been more rescued multiple times over. Right. Uh, people now very much highly tout something like The Thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Fight Club is another one. That one bombed oh, yeah. when it first that's, came that's, out in 1999. That's, a, that's an institution. And, now, yeah. yeah, now people know Fight Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with The Iron Giant. There's a lot of these movies that weren't yeah. big successes but have been rescued. Uh, uh, Speed Racers, another one. Mm-hmm. Uh None of the other Wachowski movies, but... Uh, well, I, here's, here's what I'll say about that, and I have similar criteria. Hmm. Um, they had to be expensive. They had to lose money. Not just break even, not like kind of come close. They had to lose money. And not just uh, a little. I like to choose ones that lost a lot. Yeah, or uh, relative to their production. Some of my movies were more expensive than others, but either way, they were kind of notorious flops. Um, what I will say is I had a slightly different criteria in terms of movies that have been rescued. For me, I still think that there are some movies that haven't been rescued enough. For example, It's a Wonderful Life, definitely been rescued enough. Mm. Not only did it eventually become successful, even though it practically bankrupted a studio, mm. um, it it now sells t-shirts and mugs. And, and it airs all the time. Yeah, People are really familiar with this it and is, it's become it's universally and iconic. Yeah, yeah. It's universally appreciated. To me, the ultimate like criteria of whether a movie that used to be a box office flop is now successful is whether the studio that made it is currently exploiting it as if it was always a success. Yeah. Something like yeah, Hocus yeah. Pocus, for example, which okay. when it came out, not hugely expensive, but was a flop. Hmm. And then it was on home video. People rented it over and over again. Every Halloween, it became an institution. They made a sequel. They sell merchandise now. It's a big deal now. Mm. Now, Disney is very proud of Hocus Pocus. So there are certain movies that I think maybe meet my criteria and not yours. Because while they may have some cult appreciation, and you and I may, mm. as critics, know some people who are big fans of them. Yeah. Uh, the studio itself isn't like, oh, well, now this movie is super popular. Yeah, now so we, there, there's no there's no yeah. merch. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I know a lot of people who really love the Jeff Goldblum, Cindy Lauper movie vibes. I saw that for the first time about a year ago. Yeah, and that's a fun, weird flick in which they both yeah. play psychics who team up with uh, uh, Peter Falk to find an ancient psychic treasure before an evil Julian Sands can. Mm-hmm. That movie is a delight. It's super goofy. It's super weird. It's got a fun premise. Cindy Lauper, actually a very good actor. 
it almost made my list. I didn't lose that much money. It was a flop. Uh, but it's also a film that, even though it has a cult audience, the studio that made it isn't no, you, putting it on T-shirts. You can't get a Vibes Funko Pop. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there are a couple of films that are on my list that I think there is some cult following or some appreciation, but the studio that made it isn't on board with it yet, and I think the studio still finds it like like toxic. Yeah, like yeah. some people may like it, it doesn't make money. Yeah, yeah, and I think if it still has that stamp on it, I'm going to keep using it. So there's a couple of these mm. that have a cult following. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, I'm going to start with one that you mm. and I both love. <laughs> real and, fast, real fast. Right. How we do this differently than some people? Oh yeah, well, because explain if you're the new, rules a little bit. if you're new, you might think this is weird. Uh, when we do a top ten list, we don't rank them. It's not one to ten, it's yeah. number one, uh-huh. followed by nine others that can be yeah. placed in any order. If they're in our top ten, we're talking about every movie ever made, every box office disaster ever made. Uh, we want you to see all ten of these movies. There's practically a tie. The only difference is our number one is our number one. That's the one film if you were like, hey, what's the best movie that is still considered a box office disaster? Mm-hmm. This is the movie we pick. That's our number one, we save that for last. Everything else... It's a tie for second. And on that note, we will, because this is always a very long podcast, start with Whitney. Thank you for the... Go back to your segue. I apologize. Uh, So yeah, this one does have a rather passionate but small cult following. Mm. Uh, We've done a commentary track for it. We love love Mystery Men a lot, don't we? Yeah, Um, Mystery Men's really good. Mystery Men's really good. It was also really expensive. Uh, It came uh, out in 1999. It was after that wave of uh, superhero films led by Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, where mm-hmm. everything was really garish and over-designed. Yeah, lots, uh, by, lots by, of neon. Yeah, by design. That's mm. just sort of the look they were going it for. It was the style at the time. And uh, Mystery Men took that aesthetic, that kind of over-designed aesthetic, and they had a, a director named um, Kinka Usher, mm. who uh, has only ever directed this one film, did a lot of TV commercials, uh, to make it really kind of wild and garish the way a TV commercial might be. Mm. Uh, I I love that kind of overblown aesthetic for something like Mystery Men, because Mystery Men was a satire. Yeah. It was supposed to be taking the piss out of superheroes. Mm-hmm. It was about silly superheroes with names like <laughs> The Shoveler and The Spleen and The Blue Raja, Master of Silverware. Uh, and using all of that money to... Mm. Take the piss out of your own genre. I thought was very daring. Well, especially considering and, but it, audiences didn't really jibe with it. Well, at that time, the genre, the superhero genre, mm. wasn't really being taken particularly seriously. There were a few mm. big blockbusters out there, but even Batman, yeah. the genre, the particular version of Batman that this movie is satirizing more than any other, uh, wasn't taken very seriously at all. Batman mm. Forever was seen seen as kind of chintzy and campy, mm. and people liked it. And then Batman and Robin went for the same thing, but like tripled down on it and arguably went too far in that direction. Yeah. And people were largely rejected it. So people were already like kind of like ready to like dismiss that whole genre. Yeah, well, and then if you look and if even if so you subverting look at it the, wasn't really going to attract anybody. I yeah. And, well, yeah. I think uh, nobody was really in the mood for anything kind of mm. genuine like the, the Superman movie from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if you look at comics at the time, there's a lot of deconstructionist kind of comics redesigned mm. to make them look kind of cooler and, and mm. you know, more underground. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of, everyone was trying to 90s things up. Like mm. Superman had to have a black suit and a mullet. Yeah, so you know? everybody was really kind of broody. They didn't like being superheroes anymore, or they were just killing them off, or... Yeah. Uh, or turning them into killers. Or, or turning them into 
silly characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at something like The Tick. Uh, mm-hmm. I love The Tick. I love the animated series sure. The Tick. Um, uh, another animated series that was on around the same time, Earthworm Jim. Yeah. Uh, about an earthworm in a super suit. Don't look up the creator. He's an no. asshole. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, Mystery Men kind of fell right in there, and I loved it. I loved Mystery Men. I had a great, really exciting time with it, and nobody went to go see it. No. So, uh, I saw yeah. the theaters. I, I was part of the sneak preview audience Ooh. at uh, that big theater that used to be over in Century City. So the gigantic oh, yeah. house with like 2,000 seats. Yeah, that was nice. And the crowd loved it there. Yeah. I, I don't know why that didn't translate it's, to anything uh, regarding like box office It's stuff. one of those movies that like, for some reason, it was hard to get people to see it. And it's weird. It had a great cast. Like, these were people who were selling movies. It had Ben Stiller in it. It had... Gene uh, uh, Garofalo. Gene Garofalo. And, uh, Greg Kinnear. He was a big star in the, in the late 90s. Yeah, he had an H. Oscar Macy nomination. Was a big one. Yeah, yeah. The same deal with William yeah. H. Macy. Yeah. Uh, Hank Azaria was still very popular due to The Birdcage and The Simpsons. Uh, th- this was a good cast. It's a fun premise. And it's an incredibly funny movie. Yeah, some of the jokes don't work great, but most of them are fucking hilarious. Mm-hmm. I love the garish over-designed city of it. I think it's just a wonderfully strange place to visit. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this movie to pieces. I think it is really ahead of its time. I think it's one of those movies that if it had come out 10 years later, like just 10 years, man, 2009, people would have been ready for it. Mm-hmm. It still might not have been a huge hit, but I don't think it would have bombed. Because, again, this is Ben Stiller was still a big deal. He was making Tropic Thunder. I think it would have found a more appreciative mainstream audience. Because it felt like the audience it was going for were the big comic book nerds. And the big comic book nerds wanted superhero movies that... You you said they didn't want people movies that were sincere. I think they did. I think mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why Blade was successful. It was a straight-up action movie. Yeah. I think it's why X-Men was successful. It actually took the material pretty seriously. Spider-Man was just Spider-Man. It wasn't apologizing for it. Mm. And so, well, but I think, I think, I think, Men came from a particular corner of comic, because it's based on a comic by Bob Burden, the same guy who did Flaming Carrot. So there, there was definitely uh, an audience for that irony. I agree. I'm just saying, I think that the audience for that irony was Mm. a subset Mm. of the comic book fan audience and mainstream audiences were not largely comic book movie fans yet. Yeah. So it was arguably bad timing. But it's a shame. It's a wonderful film. It is genuinely very, very funny. We quote it constantly. <laughs> uh, it t- Captain Amazing doesn't wear glasses. Lance Hunt <laughs> wears glasses. He wouldn't be able to see if Lance Hunt was Captain Amazing. Hilarious. Um, I, I would still say, hey, can we bring the brewskis? Which is uh, a cameo for Michael Bay yes. as, as the the head of the evil frat boys. Yeah. No, Mystery Men is a delight. I'm actually, I actually didn't pick it. Okay. Not because I thought you would. Often I try to like plan that. Oh. Although my first pick is something that I suspect might be on your list as well because it's another one okay. that you and I love. And unlike Mystery Men, which has a small cult following, yeah. I think we're the only two people who like White House Down. <laughs> I guess White House Down was a big bomb, wasn't it? White House Down was no, a it's, huge it's, bomb. it's not on my list. Um, okay. White House Down uh, came out after a movie called Olympus Has Fallen. Like they both three have months very, after. very similar premises where bad guys, terrorists, mm-hmm. break into the White House mm-hmm. and a brave hero mm-hmm. has to break in and rescue the president. Yeah. Uh, it's die, die Hard, die in, the hard White in the White House. Yeah. Um, Great premise. Uh, it's actually weird that no one had done it earlier. Olympus Has Fallen stars Gerard Butler mm-hmm. and was directed by Antoine Fuqua. Mm-hmm. And it is abysmal. It's, <laughs> it's 
it's badly filmed. It's not interesting. The villain is bad. Uh, yeah. It's just badly edited. It feels like a like a, a drive-in movie. It, it feels like a Steven uh, Seagal movie that got out of hand. Yeah, like uh, and, and and I don't I don't dislike it as much as you do, but it is the grim, self-serious. We didn't actually earn this level mm-hmm. of severity. Um, there's stuff I like in it. I actually think like the opening attack is actually like really intense. Like, oh god, the odds are really stacked against us. This is really mm-hmm. this is really wild. Uh, but then it just gradually loses me more and more and yeah, more, and it just becomes well, Gerard Butler kicking the shit out of people. It's Gerard Butler stalking around an empty set while he's yeah. got you know somebody in a control room talking to him in a, through an earpiece. It doesn't even look really like the White House it's just like half the those time. two sets. Yeah, and everything's yeah. really dark. Uh, and then a couple months later, there was the big slick Hollywood version done by uh, Roland Emmerich, mm-hmm. and it had Channing Tatum, and the president was played by Jamie Fox, and it was really bright and cool and. Uh, every bit of that screenplay locks into place. Mm -hmm. And um, you put it this way once, and I think this is really accurate. It is the diehard of diehard knockoffs. It's one of the best diehard knockoffs you're going to say. And I love Uh, a good diehard knockoff. Speed is a good diehard knockoff. Speed is a good diehard knockoff. The the Jean-Claude Van Damme film Sudden Death, where Powers Booth puts explosives in a hockey arena. That's a fun one. That's actually good. Jean-Claude Van Damme gets to kick the shit out of like a terrorist wearing a penguin mascot suit. (laughs) How do you not want to see that? There's a bit where in order to keep the game going, because when the game ends, everything's going to blow up. But then, like, a guy gets injured. Jean-Claude Van Damme, our hero, who's, like, a failed firefighter, has to put on the guy's, like, uh, a goalie's uniform and play the game, and he doesn't know how to play hockey. Oh, that's funny. It's great. It's fun. <laughs> it's awesome. White House Down is the same basic premise as Olympus Has Fallen, but tonally, it's a total pendulum swing. It's totally in the opposite direction. Whereas Olympus Has Fallen is grim, to the point of being almost tasteless, White House Down is actually impressively bright. The characters are funny. They have interesting, entertaining conversations and relationships. The president is actually a neat guy. And like unlike... talk of like policy and who he is. Yeah. And he we're on the cusp of the World Peace Accord. <laughs> we're we're all gonna sign the World Peace Papers and yes. there will be world peace after that. Uh, White House Down uh, actually gets like a hero to actually spend a lot of time with the president, making more of a buddy movie. That really works well. Uh, Roland Emmerich, say what you will about his movies. He's made some stinkers. Oh, golly, yes. Even his stinkers, the dude knows how to film action. Mm. He makes it big. He makes it epic. He makes it clean and clear. You always know what's happening, and it always looks cool. Uh the the irony of Roland Emmerich is that he's going to take that sort of clarity and mm-hmm. that slick approach, uh, regardless of whether or not the action is stupid. Oh, yeah. uh, he'll he'll take like a really stupid, completely impossibly physical, like physics don't matter mm-hmm. premise, and film the heck out of that too. Moonfall, another big bomb, uh-huh. uh, is a prime example of this. The moon is passing by Earth and sucking people off of the Earth with its gravity. Uh-huh. Like, like, the moon is chasing you. Yeah. <laughs> it's so goddamn it's, stupid. It's, it's really fucking stupid. And <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, the, the moon itself has, like, evil robot aliens. Yeah, the, the moon is a character. Yeah. The moon is actually a character It's like in the moon Moonfall. is a character in the movie. <laughs> but literally. The, that movie is idiocy. Yes, it is. I kind of like it. But, but he 
He films it with that clarity. He's got that yeah. mastery of it. Yeah. The other thing that I think people kind of overlook in White House Down, it's a, okay, it's a little goofy. Some people aren't fond of action movies that have a bit of sense of humor. I would argue that if White House Down was like a spin-off of the Fast and Furious movies, everyone would have been on the right wavelength. <laughs> Maybe so. Because if you if you seriously it has that kind of overblown tone. That to it. overblown tone, the characters are a little arch, there's a lot of humor to it. Like throw that in the same arena as Fast and Furious Six. If you approach it thinking you're it's taking place in a corner of that universe, I think you'll be primed to enjoy it. The other thing I really kinda like about the movie is that Roland Embrick is making the unabashed, unapologetic liberal fantasy. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. this is... Jamie Foxx is basically playing Barack Obama. Mm. And the villain of the film, it's not like... is the villain of the film in uh, uh, Olympus Has Fallen, it's... I think it's North Korea, if memory serves. It's, it's basically... It's like actual terrorists. Whereas yeah. in White House Down, of course, there's American politicians behind it all. Exactly. So, like, whereas Olympus has fallen, and God knows the second film follows suit, is incredibly xenophobic. It is incredibly mm. nationalistic in a very unwholesome way. And and it gets even worse in the sequels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no, L- London has fallen especially. It's a genuinely irresponsible motion picture. There's entertaining parts of it, but it's fucked up in a lot yeah. of ways. Uh, and I realize not everyone listening is going to have the same political beliefs, but so many of our action movies have, if not explicitly stated, a generally conservative stance towards the military, towards foreign policy, towards whether or not it's okay for Americans to fuck shit up anywhere because we think we're right. Team America made fun of this decades ago. Um, in White House Down, the, the villains are conservatives. The who who just hate liberals taking over America and want to warmonger. Uh, James Woods plays the villain, and he's playing James Woods more or less. It's like yeah. he's been in character ever since. <laughs> like it's weird, actually. Oh, um, James Woods. It's yeah. it's such a pity because he is he is a talented. He actor. He has talent. Yeah. He's made he's done some given some great performances before. But just you think about some of the performances he's given. Like you know, it was one of his best performance playing the racist guy in Ghosts of Ghosts Mississippi. Of Mississippi yeah. He's great in that movie. Um. I'm not gonna. I'm trying not to read into that, but it's hard not to at this point. Um, so him playing this villain is is him being either completely unaware of the wavelength of the movie, or being like weirdly self aware of his own persona, mm. and it's kind of amazing. Um, it's unabashed. It's unapologetic. It's sometimes gloriously silly. In Channing Tatum's first scene, he gets in an argument with a squirrel. And loses. <laughs> it ends with Joey King waving off an airstrike on the White House by grabbing the presidential uh, uh, flag and doing a flag twirling routine on the White House lawn. Uh, the flag twirling routine, by the way, which was set up early in the movie. Yes, it was. This is so the, uh, like Die Hard. There's yeah. like a setup and a payoff for every little detail. Everything that they set up. Gets paid off. It's actually a really good script, provided you're willing to accept that it's not Olympus has fallen. Anyway, mm. we've gone on long enough. I love this movie. This movie is intensely satisfying. It is a great Fourth of July watch every single year. Uh, Winnie, what's your next pick? Uh, let's see. Um, this is another one that has a, a little bit of a cult following. That has a, mm. a lot of appreciators, but it still, to this day, mm. has the stigma of how much money it lost. 
uh, I remember how this movie came out when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had a, just all the articles about this was how about how much it, it was tanking and how, mm-hmm. how how bad it was for its star. Um, but I'm very fond of the very strange movie Hudson Hawk. Oh, uh, that's a good pick. Yeah, Hud, Hudson Hawk is about a cat burglar. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's, his nickname is Hudson Hawk. He's played by Bruce Willis. And uh, he gets out of prison, and he is immediately uh, roped back into doing another job. Yeah. Uh, doing a lot of heists with his partner, yeah. Danny Aiello. Uh, Hudson Hawk and Danny Aiello, uh, th- this is a cartoon. Oh, yeah. They, they, they banter, uh, they talk about, you know, I, I need to get cappuccino, mm-hmm. and they uh, while they're doing their heists, they quiz each other on, like, the lengths of pop songs. Well, they, what they do is, like, okay, we have, like... Five minutes to perform this entire task from beginning to end. Rather than synchronize our watches like a professional thief, we know that swinging on a star is exactly five minutes long. So we're going to sing the entire thing while we do the heist, and by the end of the heist, we'd better be done. So it's charming. It, it makes no like, sense, it's like but it's a, charming. It's like a heist movie musical because we see them sing the whole song. Yes, we it do. It gets onto the soundtrack. Uh, this was written by Stephen E. D'Souza, who was writing a lot of the big blockbusters at the time. Mm-hmm. He wrote um, he wrote Die Hard. He wrote the NDD. Well, one of the uh, writers, anyway. Yeah, he also wrote K Nine Thousand, a failed TV pilot about a cop who teams up with a cyborg dog. Uh, let's focus on Commando instead, <laughs> or, or or even another bomb of his, a Last Action Hero. Um, yeah, wait, was that Stephen? E. No, I don't think that was Stephen E. D'Souza. No, that was. Um... Oh, that was Shane Black. That was Shane Black. Although I, I think there was also a, a bunch of people worked on that. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah anyway, excuse, excuse me. Um, yeah, Steve, Stephen D'Souza did not do uh, that one, but he did do Hudson yeah. Hawk. And Hudson Hawk uh, starts involving these really eccentric supervillains, played by Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhard, uh, who are looking oh, for God, uh, wonderful. They, they and they're overplaying it in just the right way. They're the best James Bond villains we've ever yeah. had. They just weren't in a James Bond film, yeah. and I'm not exaggerating. I stand by that. <laughs> uh, we're introduced to the characters. Uh, there's uh, some bad guys are bidding on a, an ancient uh, relic, a- ancient relic that used to be in uh, Leonardo da Vinci's lab. Yeah, and and everybody's betting on this thing. It's like a model a helicopter mm-hmm. that he built. Mm-hmm. And we're introduced to Richard E. Grant. He charges in, he's, and he just sort of sta- he goes up to the actual mm. item, stands up on the table, faces the audience, and just says, One million clams! <laughs> and the, you know, the, the fluster guy says, Oh, one million clams! And then Sandra Bernhardt comes in, walking her little dog, and just says, One million and one, Waldo! It's like, oh, we know who these people are. This is like... But for the grace of God, we should have gotten Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff in those roles. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's very strange uh, thugs played by who are named after candy bars, mm-hmm. kind of floating around. And uh, James Coburn shows up. David Caruso uh, plays, uh, 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 I think, he plays Kit Kat. Who is uh, silent? Yeah, who's silent, speak. and he's constantly copying whoever's in the room with him. So, like, whatever Bruce Willis is doing, yeah. David Caruso is also doing. Every single element of this movie is thought out way too much. Like every single <laughs> thing in the movie has to be cute and clever. Yeah. And I'll be honest here: the the only reason this isn't on my list is it's a little much after a while. Like it's well, a lot I, to I, take I, in. I like the muchness of it. That's, that's why I appreciate it. There's a time and a place for that. And when that time is now, mm. Hudson Hawk is the film to watch. It is mostly quite charming. 
I just it's, I, it's un- I think it needs to be watched in shifts. It's almost unbearably creative. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Hudson Hawk is escaping a heist on a chicken truck, mm. and just it, he's being chased. He leaps off of one thing, lands on a truck, and then uh, it spins around a corner. He flies off of the truck, mm. and he lands in the next scene. Mm-hmm. Like that's the transition, and yeah. so it looks like he fell off of the truck. I love that to shit. A, a shot like inside of a room. Uh-huh. He's literally coughing up feathers while he's in this next scene. That's wonderful, isn't that? I love that. Yeah. Did you, ever, did you ever see Saw Four? Uh, yes, I've, I've seen the the first eight Saw movies. <laughs> okay, I've seen most of the Saw movies. I, I haven't there's seen a, the nine. There's an incredible transition in Saw Four where someone is like running from a saw trap or something like that, and they run through a glass window and it shatters, and then. They like it breaks and they fall down at the lower end of the screen and all of a sudden, uh, it's like on the other side of that window was a police station. They did that practically. Oh wow! That was nice. planned. That was uh, not an editing trick. That was not a green screen. They just thought that would be a cool transition. And guess what? That's a fucking cool transition. I love that shit. So I I, I appreciate how weird it is. I like its sense yeah. of humor. I like its weird uh, energy that it mm-hmm. just never lets up on. Uh, there's like all things made 30 years ago, some dated humor, but, yeah. uh, not as much as you might think. No. Yeah. There's, there's a sexual assault joke. That's rather oh, casual, yeah, but, that's, um, that's not cool at all. Uh, but, uh, uh you know, it, it, it's just dated. Uh, apart from that, just a lot of the, the energy and a lot of the characters are just really, really fun. Yeah. Um, and, I think, and, and you're not making, you're not finding Funko pops of that one. No, no nobody no. loves it. It's still considered like, yeah, icky thing like it'll, it'll get a blu-ray release i remember years after it came out like 1995 1996 i was listening to the my parents listened to the radio news as mm. they would drive me home from school every day and they had like a special bulletin and they were just like it's official someone finally rented hudson hawk enough that it is in the black <laughs> it broke even <laughs> it finally broke even today someone oh, was, rented it from blockbuster today that, that was the joke they made uh, in the first episode of the revival of kids of the hall kids in the hall oh yeah uh there was a, a shot of like a, a Canadian garage sale. And there's mm. an old guy, one of the, I think it's Scott Thompson is running it. Mm. It's like uh, somebody picks up a VHS copy of uh, the kids in the hall movie, brain candy. It's like, Oh, this one looks funny. Yeah. That one came out in the nineties. It was really great. I'll, I'll ha- let you have it for a dollar. And they give, gives this guy a dollar. Mm. And as they hand over the money, there's this like sort of thunder in the sky. <laughs> the movie in that moment broke even. Like that's the, <laughs> Finally made its money back. Yes, now that it's broken even, we can finally you know, <laughs> bring the TV show back. And they literally dig them up out of the ground. They're dead nice. for the revival. Well, one thing that uh, a lot of the movies I suspect we're going to be talking about today have in common is that because they're box office bombs, they were probably expensive to begin with. Uh-huh. There aren't a lot of like relatively inexpensive movies that are considered huge bombs because ultimately, even if they didn't make money, the studio didn't lose that much yeah so like uh gem and the holograms for example isn't on my list because it cost it only made like one million dollars but only cost four yeah so that, it's, that, it's a disaster a, yeah. but it's no one i don't think too many people lost their jobs over it it was a relatively minimal investment um but there isn't there's one or two exceptions i'm gonna make though and my next pick is i'm moving away from sort of the action adventure genre um it's a comedy it is a comedy from a beloved screenwriter who has written uh, some of the most popular comedies of the 80s and 90s. Uh, it starred uh, a actor who has starred in multiple hit sitcoms, including one at the time while this movie came out. Uh, and nobody went to it, and it quickly became a joke on his own sitcom 
I'm talking about the Ed O'Neill movie Dutch. Oh, I didn't realize that was oh, considered yeah. like a bomb. Or oh, anything. that was a big bomb. You know, there's a lot I, of... I like, like Dutch a lot. I like and Dutch a lot, too. I just didn't know it's known for it, being a failure. It cost $17 million and it made like four and a half. Which is right. which is which was enough that it became Bot- a joke. Okay, it's maybe not the most notorious bomb ever. At the time, it was a joke. It was a, it was a punchline for a while, mm-hmm. and I think largely people forgot about it because it's barely on DVD. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't for many many people years. People don't talk about that movie. Much. Nobody talks about mm-hmm. it. And but it's one of those movies that when I bring it up, like when I say, "Hey, I'm watching Dutch," because it's a Thanksgiving movie, and there mm-hmm. aren't that many good Thanksgiving movies, so. Um, it's something to watch instead of planes, trains, and automobiles, which I mostly like, but it's a little intense and caustic. Yeah. Um, I actually get really stressed out by planes, trains, and automobiles. I know you I do. I've said that before. I know you do, and I can appreciate that. I think sometimes it's trying for that, but mm. I'm not always in the mood. For me, you know, Thanksgiving is more of a time for pieces of April, son-in-law, and Dutch. Um, yeah, Dutch was expected to be a big hit. John Hughes was coming off of Home Alone. Uh it's, it's another holiday hit. It's, it's another um, holiday a, film. A it's a road trip movie. It, yeah. he, John Hughes has made a lot of hit road trip movies. He did Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. He did the National Lampoon movies, uh, like the Vacation and so forth. That was actually based on his childhood vacations. Uh, so, like, another kind of bratty kid, mm. buddy comedy road trip. So, basically, trying to combine the vibes of Home Alone and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Sounds like a recipe for success. No one went to see it. And it's good. It's really quite good. Is it the best John Hughes movie? No, but I wouldn't put it low on that list. Uh, Ed O'Neill plays a guy who... um, He's in love with a woman who has had a really nasty divorce. Her husband's played by Christopher McDonald, so you know he's a piece of shit. Like, try to find the number of times Christopher McDonald hasn't played an asshole. It's like that one episode of Star Trek, and that's it. It's pretty amazing. Um... He has completely brainwashed their son. Their son is played by a very young Ethan Embry, uh, who at the time was credited as Ethan Randall. And uh, and he's great. He's so good. In this movie. He is like l- a legitimate revelation in this yeah, movie. Yeah, he's really preternatural in this. And he's a kid who, he's very intelligent, but he's also learned so much condescension and like moral, unearned moral superiority from his dipshit of a father that who has and, and soured him against his own mom. So he, he hates her now. And uh, the movie's very much about class. And in fact, they talk about class a lot in this mm-hmm. movie. Um, the Ed O'Neill character is uh, sort of a blue collar guy. Yeah, he's actually, yes, he owns his own business, mm-hmm. but like he, he came up on his own. He like works yeah. in construction. Whereas and a, his dad is like some corporate stock tycoon yeah, or something. Like a, a, a yuppie. Yeah, he's a yuppie. Basically, and, yuppie. And, and this kid is like yuppie, ungrateful little yuppie larva. Yeah. And, uh, to very entitled, very much a shit, yeah. And and, and, and they, uh, and that's sort of like their, the the reason they butt heads so much is because mm-hmm. this guy doesn't trust the lower classes. Mm-hmm. And, but they talk about that, like, why do you not trust working class people? Mm-hmm. And what, what, why do you not respect that? And they have conversations to that effect. And, and I over love the that they actually the f- address it directly. And over the course of the film, they, their circumstances get so much worse and worse that he begins to actually experience more of what that would be like. Mm. And realizing firsthand, ah, I'm an ass. And again, he's a kid and he's mm. learning this stuff. And Ed O'Neill is like trying to be cool, but the kid is pushing back at him with such 
veracity mm. with with physical violence. The first thing he does is beat him up. He, yeah. he beats the shit out of him, and then finally he gets to the point where the only way to take because the his whole thing is he's going to drive him from his prep school to his mom's house. They mm. could take a plane and it would take an hour, but he wants to go on a trip because he wants to marry the kid's mom. Mm. He wants to build a good relationship with him, and he ends up having to tie him up in the back seat in order to get him <laughs> home. So they're off to a bad start. Um, it's a film that kind of pushes how real it is because in some cases it's very plausible. It's a bunch, it's not in the cartoon home alone. Mm. You can get hit in the head with a wrench and be fine universe. But some of the things that happen in it are a bit broad and you start to realize, okay, some of the things these characters are doing to each other are awful. Also, some of these characters are awful and need to actually have their comeuppance even though that they're young um the character ethan Embry plays is surprisingly nuanced he could just have been an evil shit a lot of kid bully characters are just portrayed as evil jerks mm. because to the kids and, the, and their redemption is like kind of rushed or if they have it at all yeah. or sometimes they're just punished or, or not um he's actually a re he's dad did a number on this kid and he's got a lot of soul-searching that he does over the course of the film. And yeah, you're right. Ethan Embry is preternaturally good in it. He sells a lot of complexity that you don't see in a lot of other John Hughes movies. Um, it's not a laugh riot, but it is funny. It's just not like a broad comedy like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles or Vacation or, or whatever. But um, I think it's really sweet. I think it's very kind of confrontationally sincere about sort of the differences between, like, the buddies within the narrative. Uh, and, um, yeah, it deserves better. Mm. It deserves a lot better. It's a really, really good movie, and it did not deserve to be a punchline, and it does not deserve to be barely available. So, yeah. yeah see, so got Dutch. If you never saw it, see it. It's good. Check, check, I, I, I like Dutch a lot. I never would have thought of this one, just because yeah. I, I didn't know it was considered a, a bomb or a, a mm. joke of any kind. I thought it was just... A uh, comedy that came out in the early 90s. There was, there was an episode of Married with Children right after this movie came out where uh, Al's like trapped on an airplane and he doesn't want to be there. And the, mm. the cherry on the cake is that the, the movie on the flight is Dutch. Oh, my. So he's like, oh, no. So well, he was like eating shit immediately for this. Oh, there's a joke like that in Freaked as well. Mm. Like, was there a movie on the plane? Yeah, it was Return to the Blue Lagoon. And Brooke Shields asked the question. And, and Brooke Shields gets to say, oh, I heard that sucked. Because she's yeah. in that movie. Yeah, it's, it's um, bad. Dutch is available to stream on DirecTV. Good for them! So, Finally so, yeah. available somewhere. However, not everyone has DirecTV. Yeah, it's one of the, the less popular streamers, but it's there. It is there. Please see it if you wait till Thanksgiving, fair enough. Mm. But see it, or if you remember it vaguely, it's it holds up good. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. What do you got? Let's see. Um, do I have some do I have comedies on here? I, I do have a couple comedies on here. Um, I have a comedy... That should not have worked, mm. and no one was interested. Uh, in um, in the late '90s, there was a big hit film called *George of the Jungle* with yes. Brendan Fraser. Uh, 
people love that movie. People love Brendan Fraser in that mm-hmm. movie. Brendan Fraser kind of hates that movie. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he says it gave him a lot of body issues that he's still wrestling with to this day. He had to work out a lot. He's yeah. shirtless in it. People mm-hmm. ogle him a lot. It's very funny. And honestly, it's mostly funny because of Brendan Fraser. Uh, yeah. Well, he's killing it in that film. And, and Leslie Mann. There's actually Leslie a, like, a w- wonderful cast just all around. I, I think but, my uh, point Brendan is. Brendan Fraser is, is a star in that I th- movie. I think my point is if Brendan Fraser wasn't doing his job, it doesn't matter how good mm-hmm. Leslie Mann was, the movie wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they said, well, that's based on a Jay Ward cartoon. Let's do other movies based on Jay Ward cartoons. Let's mm-hmm. do Mr. B- Peabody and Sherman. That one fell apart. Didn't come mm-hmm. out for many, many years. Although the animated uh, movie that got out of it was, was good. It was pretty good. Yeah, yeah which, I like that it's, movie. it's about queer parenting. Yeah. Right? So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it um, works. They uh, made a Dudley Do-Right movie, also with Brendan Fraser. Not as good. I never even saw that one. Oh, uh, Alfred Molina plays Snidely Whiplash. Not, oh. good, good idea. That's but, a good idea. Yeah. Not great. But then they said, you know, we got to get the cherry on the cake. What's the big one? Got to do the Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. They made Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. And they kind of wanted to do Roger Rabbit sort of thing. Where it's really... Mm, the cartoons are in the real world. Yeah. So the cartoon is actually really self-aware. It's about... The movie is about the making of the movie you're watching. Uh, They literally pull the characters out of screen... Out of TV screens and they enter the real world. Rocky and Bullwinkle are... This two D, two and a half D animation where mm. they're done in CGI, but they're, made they're to animated look like to look 2D. like actual drawings, which is yeah. actually a pretty cool look. That's the way they yeah. did the uh, the robot and uh, the Iron Giant. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie is completely delightful. Mm. It's funny. The jokes land. It's timed well. It has the spirit of the old Jay Ward cartoons, just without sort of the shabbiness. Yeah, because if you watch those old Jay Ward cartoons, they were made very much on the cheap. Uh, this is like a big professional studio picture. Uh, June Foray came back to play the voice of Rocky. Oh, that's nice. And they te- and they t- make it into a road movie, and they team them up with Piper Parabo, who is a wonderful actress, mm. wonderful Canadian actress. Totally charming. She was very young. She was like 20 yeah. when she made the movie. She was a big deal in and, like uh, literally the turn of the century. She was in that. She was in Coyote Ugly. She was in a few other like, yeah. big things. Yeah. Uh, she was in a, a pretty good queer romance called Lost and Delirious. Mm. Uh and yeah, she plays the the sort of delightful FBI agent who has to escort Rocky and Bullwinkle through the real world on a road trip for reasons it doesn't really matter. Uh, I think they even say that. Uh, nobody cared. Nobody wanted no. to see this movie. They needed really expensive special effects to realize this movie, to mm. make Rocky and Bullwinkle actually put them on the screen. There's a, a special effects sequence where they go uh, into cyberspace because they were making jokes about that at the time. And mm-hmm. uh, Bullwinkle is in the internet for a little bit. Big expensive special effects sequence. Don't need it. You don't <laughs> need to spend that much money on this kind of a movie. Uh, there's a bit where they transform FBI agents into literal vegetables. And they use expensive, mm. extensive makeups to make their heads look like vegetables. One of the vegetables is Doug Jones. Oh, the, I'm actually not surprised. By he's that. always in the makeup chair. That of course, guy. he is. Who do you get to play fearless leader, the villain? Why not Robert De Niro, a really expensive star? Nice. You, I like that you got Robert De Niro. He's game. Mm-hmm. He's selling the part. He's actually playing the role. You didn't need to get Robert De Niro, but okay. Who played Boris and Natasha? It was Jason Alexander, mm. who who uh, very hot shit, mm. and uh, and Natasha was played by Rene Russo. Did you ever see the Boris and Natasha movie that they did in the 90s? Yes, it sucks. Yeah, it starred it's Dave so Thomas bad. and Sally Kellerman, uh, which, honestly, not a bad get for a TV movie, TV movie in, like, 92. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's not very good. I think Sally Kellerman wrote it. Uh, like, she, she had something to do with, like... Sally Kellerman had something to do with the production no, of that movie. It was directed... Oh. 
It's directed by Charles Martin Smith, which is actually yeah, pretty good. Yeah, uh, oh, she Sally Kellerman executive produced it. She produced it. Okay, yeah. I, I knew she was like one of the muckety mucks. Yeah, it was like a made for Showtime movie, mm-hmm. and they did they did Rocky and Bullwinkle movie without Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah, Bull not, choice, just, just Boris and Natasha. Yeah, Bull choice. Uh, uh, this was a movie that I, I didn't have a lot of time. Usually when we do these iron lists, mm. I'm mostly going off of stuff that I've already seen. But if I'm aware that I have some gaps, I'll try to fill at least a few of them. Mm. Just in case there's a movie that I've never seen before that really belongs on the list. Yeah, I had two movies I was going to make time for. One was this movie, and I didn't get to it. Because oh, I've okay. heard from people whose opinion I respect that it is quite funny. And yeah. you just confirmed that. The one that I did watch... And it is not the next film I am picking. All right. <laughs> so just so we're clear, this didn't make my list, although I know it has some very fervent fans, was Ishtar. Oh, golly. Ishtar, which stars Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman as talentless musicians who get swept up in, like, espionage. In, in the Middle East. In the Middle yeah. East. Um, or I think it's Northern Africa, actually, technically. But, um, oh, okay. It, you, you know. I haven't seen it. I just I, I just know it's legend. You know, it's, it's it's directed by Elaine May. It cost way more money than anyone expected it to, and it beca- it's become one of the great cinematic punchlines. Mm. Oh, it's worse than Ishtar. People were very very mean to Ishtar when it came out, and in the years that have followed, it has found some appreciative fans. Some people who think it is quite good. I think both Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty said that they're actually rather proud of it. Okay. Um, it actually had two. Two unironic votes for the best movie of all time in this year's in the latest, uh, latest sight and sound poll. Like that—that's how much people are trying to turn around on the, Ishtar. And I and I saw it. I had never seen it before. I had heard the legends. I wanted to give it a fair shake. And I'm here to tell you, it is not as bad as the people made it out to be. The critics made it out to be in the late '80s. It is nowhere near that fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> because the problem with that movie, in, in addition to just there's some great moments and some really good lines of dialogue. You know, it's Elaine May. She's very talented. Um, the The biggest problem with that movie is that it is about talentless musicians and they made them genuinely talentless and we have to listen to them be talentless and sing talentlessly and write music talentlessly forever. There's a reason why, you know, in movies you kind of play with reality a little bit. Like, if you're a bad musician, I don't want to, like, want to grind my teeth into oblivion listening to you. (laughs) And that's what Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty are doing in that movie. So by the time the plot kicks in, which is really far into the movie, I was just not feeling it. Like, at all. And by the time I was feeling it, the movie was almost over. And it just, it didn't, it never won me back. But, um... Ishtar is, is not that film. I made the wrong choice. I should have watched should have The Adventures of Rocky, Rocky and Bullwinkle. God damn it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, maybe not a comedy classic for the ages, mm-hmm. but... Doesn't deserve its uh, reputation. Does not deserve its reputation yeah. and is completely delightful. Uh, nice. If you're a fan of Rocky and Bullwinkle, Moose and Squirrel, um, yeah. the movie gets it. The movie understands that yeah. spirit. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 
91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Uh, my next pick is also an adaptation of, uh, of a cartoon. It's a live-action adaptation of a cartoon. Uh, it is a movie that was enormously expensive. Nobody went to see it. Uh, it has a cult. Most people, whenever I say I like this movie, including you, spit on me. I'm not going to spit on you. Yeah, you're pretty I'm, far away. I, I will I will stare daggers into uh-huh. you, though. It's made by a filmmaker who some people consider to be one of the greatest filmmakers of the second half of the 20th century. Oh, I know what you're going to talk about. It was the first major starring role from a comedy legend. <laughs> oh, God. And it is a work of absolute <laughs> genius. Oh, no. Robert Altman's Popeye. Robert Altman's Popeye sucks. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Robert Altman's Popeye is absolutely magical. Robert Altman, a filmmaker who yeah, he made some comedies, he made some dramas, he played around with some different genres, but in many respects, his work was kind of defined by its sort of general... Realism. Realism, especially yeah. conversational realism. There's a lot of crosstalk. Uh, it really felt like you were in the room with real characters. Yeah, ca- characters, yeah, yeah, had conversations at the same time. Uh, everything was really sort of paced and edited in this very natural fashion. Yeah. Even, even a pretty arch comedy like M.A.S.H., it's still presented as kind of a natural character piece where outlandish things happen as a result of real people. Yeah. Uh, it, Nashville is one of the greatest motion pictures ever made. The long it was the long goodbye that he did. Long goodbye. That's yeah, one of the best really private detective movie. mystery movies ever made. Absolutely I'm genius. Very, I'm, I'm very positive on on Robert yeah. Altman. Yeah. There, there's some films that are of his that are very very celebrated that I'm not so fond of. I'm not a big fan of McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Uh, uh, I, I love McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I'm not a fan of Gosford Park. I think. It, okay, I like I like Gosford Park. I, I, I think like the cast the, is good. I think the mystery part is like kind of forgotten about in that movie, yeah, and well, I think which, I think it kind I, of. Kind of appreciate. Um, uh, one, one that uh, it's not what I the, like. the Criterion Collection kind of rescued was Three Women. Uh, I actually never seen that one. Yeah, Three Women is I hear it's good. Yeah. Um, so I, I like Robert Altman. I yeah. like sort of his naturalist style. And My, I feel like when he's getting into fantasy, mm-hmm. he is at a loss. Well, I think that's. But here's what, what I think is interesting about it is that we see kind of why he doesn't do fantasy because his approach to fantasy is very unusual, and I think it's very befitting Popeye. The Popeye cartoons, if you watch the original Popeye cartoons... Kind of stream of consciousness. The Fleischers. Yeah. yeah, they're very, very strange, and they're very, very bold, and they're playing with reality in a way that cartoons just don't do anymore. They're they're very unapologetically over the top. And his approach to that wasn't to make that real, which you might expect, you know, Robert Altman's going to find the humanity in these characters. His approach was, I'm going to take every exaggerated cartoon thing... And I'm going to make that the reality. I'm going to film the reality of the cartoon in live action. Mm. And so, you know how, like, in, in the cartoons, Popeye has these weirdly pronounced forearms, even though, like, his upper arms are, you know, ra- kind of thin? That's a very strange look. It works great in a cartoon. In reality, it looks very weird. Guess what they gave Robin Williams? Those big fucking arms. There are characters who, like spin around in like cartoon whirling dervishes. There's a moment in the film where Popeye and Olive Oil, who initially hate each other and they find each other. It's an origin story. Um, She's engaged to... In the cartoon, he's Bluto. In the movie, he's Brutus. It's one of the few things they decided to change arbitrarily. But um, she's married to... She's going to get married to Brutus. And she meets Popeye. She hates Popeye, but now they're going to be together. And when Brutus sees them together... 
just standing and standing in front of him. Brutus sees red. And here's how Robert Alban films that. He does the entire shot we just saw of Popeye and olive oil in a weird sort of shantytown location. He replaces everything with an identical replica except it's bright, it's bright red. Yes. For two seconds. Huge waste of money for an absolutely brilliant joke. There's a wonderful surreality to this. This world that he's created is like an it's like an amusement park mm -hmm. to the extent that this giant set that he built is an amusement park. Like they kept it up and it became a tourist he, attraction. He built an entire city. That's he built one of an the entire city. It costs so much dang money. He did that for McCabe and Mrs. Miller as well, except that movie was a hit and it made money. Mm. Popeye was this giant strange thing. And it is beautiful and miraculous to watch and the score by Harry Nilsson. Harry Nilsson did the musical songs. He did the songs for this movie. Hmm. And if you know Harry Nilsson, he's a very wonderful, quirky, very chill songwriter. His songs for this movie are perfectly wrong. <laughs> like, everything is, is like a little off-key, but it's perfectly off-key, so that by the time you're one verse into it, you can't imagine it being sung another way. Hmm. Uh, one of the songs uh, uh, from Popeye, uh, He Needs Me. Sung by uh, Olive Oil, played by the great Shelley Duvall. Uh, we ended up on the soundtrack to Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. Because it is enchanting, and it is sweet. And if you listen to, like, the extended soundtrack album that came out, like, decades later, there's a lot of, like, B-sides, and there's, like, a, like a seven-minute track of Harry Nilsson teaching Shelley Duvall to play that song. Teaching her to sing it and her like messing up a little bit in like some really cute ways mm. and trying it again. And it is the ultimate version of that song. It is just absolutely charming and sweet. Mm. I love Popeye to death. It is... Saying you love Popeye, perhaps more than any other Robert Altman film, is like saying your favorite Steven Spielberg movie is 1941. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I can kind of see it It's not like it isn't made without some panache But also, really? And I appreciate that And I know I go out on a limb with this As much as I love Nashville, as much as I love McCabe and Mrs. Miller As much as I love a lot of his other movies Popeye is it for me He steps way out of his wheelhouse And into another wheelhouse And I love mm. it to pieces uh, he, he steps off he, he wants to get off the bike and puts his foot in the spokes so, yeah, he just, and that's funny and Popeye he, and he flies off <laughs> and injures himself that's, spla that's slapstick uh, that's exactly you're, what you're talking about Harry for. Nelson's music oh golly I find it unbelievably irritating oh no uh, it's uh, the, so the, the, the movie is is uh, stressful and chaotic and <laughs> shrill and obnoxious oh uh, I, it's, think it's, I think it's it, it, it is a, a chore to sit through Popeye it is grating and Horrific. These are uh, literally the only two schools of thought on Popeye. By yeah. the way, either it's the most charming movie ever made, or it's the most difficult sit in your entire life. It it, it takes a lot of stamina to get through something as <laughs> annoying as Popeye. Oh God, we so disagree on this one. This is one of our great disagreements. Uh, we agree on a lot. I, I actually. understand that that Popeye, and you're not the only one who defends oh, I Popeye. I know there I know. are a lot of people who really love Popeye. Not enough to make it like a hit film. Not mm. enough to make the studio proud of it. Not enough to get a big 4K Criterion mm. out of it or anything like that. But yeah, that's. that's 
that's, it. And, it and has the, some appreciation. And that movie came out in what, 1980? It's been a while. 80, 81, yeah, yeah somewhere around there. It was, was like Robin Williams' first movie, really. And well, it was it was such a bomb. Technically, he was cut from another movie, and then they re-released right. it with his scene in it. Uh, so, said, Can I do it till I need glasses, I think was the name of it. Uh, but yeah, Popeye uh, is still such a bomb that even to this day, mm-hmm. people have trouble getting behind Popeye. Sure. Uh, the original Popeye cartoons from the 30s mm-hmm. are still excellent. And Masterpieces. I, I, I encourage you to seek those out. Yeah. Uh, Gendy Tartakovsky, the mm-hmm. animator, yeah. wanted to make a Popeye movie because he's a big fan of those he, old Popeye cartoons. He started. Cartoons. I was actually in his... I interviewed him once. I was in his office. There was like production art everywhere. It was going to be gorgeous. Yeah, and he was going to do a CGI version of Popeye, but he's been doing... If you watch those Hotel Transylvania movies, he did some really interesting things with CG. Like tried yeah. to make he like, made them as stretch, elastic, as... stretch the medium a, yeah. a lot. And um, God, those, those that first Hotel Transylvania is such a delight. It it's again it, it's so frantic. It's like you need a lot of sugar to get through that movie. Exactly. But uh, it's, it's really good in terms of just visually and what he's doing with animation. It's definitely kind of kind of revolutionary. It's kind of a masterwork um, actually. Uh, and he was going to do Popeye. Great. I want to see what he what he can do with a CGI yes. Popeye and. The studio got cold feet. It's like, really? The last time we tried this, in 1980, (laughs) uh, it didn't do well for us. Like, really? You're still licking your wounds? Like, 40 years years later. That's that's the legacy uh, of Popeye. This one has not been properly redeemed. Yeah. What's your next pick? Uh, Well, let's see. I I think I'll pick one that uh, I love, but I know you also kind of hate. Oh, no. Um, This movie came out, and uh, it it got one of those, uh, what I think is a rare honor. And that is an F Cinema Score. Uh, <laughs> cinema Score is a, a website that polls audiences as they exit, and uh, you know critics have one score that you know hmm. the critics like have maybe a, a Rotten well, Tomatoes cr- approval rating. Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic hmm. will like gauge what critics think. There might be an audience score, but that's kind of hard to gauge. You don't even need to prove you've seen the movie yeah, in order to because you're just logging that. on to to Rotten Tomatoes and voting whatever you want. But Cinema Score uh, they get you right after you leave the yeah. theater and uh, on opening weekend. And usually when people are leaving a, a big movie on opening weekends, they'll usually be really hype about it. Even yeah. if it's not a great movie, they were excited to be there at the movie theater and see the yeah. big movie they were anticipating. They, they, did, they went so, on purpose. So you know? cinema score, like a, a B is actually kind of a low cinema score. Mm-hmm. Most of these things get like A, A minus, B plus. Yeah. Getting an F. If nobody likes this movie. It means they're mad at that, it. That, that was not what I wanted. It's not they what resent, I expected. But basically a cinema score is that I get the movie I paid to yeah. see. And, this, and if I if I'm mad at the movie, I give it an F. And this is a movie that had a, a big hot young star in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had Jennifer Lawrence in it. Yeah, I know. What you're and <laughs> people say, "Oh, let's go see the Jennifer Lawrence movie." Oh, and it was done by. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so by a hot hot filmmaker who did these like really Oscar winning movies. Oscar Darren Aronofsky, Oscar winning movie mm-hmm. kind of director. He's like kind of hip and edgy. He made a film called Mother with a small M and a, an exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a really gory nightmare of a film. Yes. Have you ever had a stress nightmare? That's this movie. <laughs> uh, I've had many stress nightmares. Yeah. In fact, there was a time in my life when that was the only kind of dream I had. Yeah. yeah I have, um, I'm a very so anxious if, person. If you've ever had a nightmare about like your home and people just keep on coming into your home and you can't stop them, they're not necessarily home invaders. They're just there and they stress you out. That's this movie. Uh, it's uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Mm. And her husband, a guy. <laughs> He's a writer. He's a writer. He's a writer. He's played by uh, Javier, Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem. Yeah. 
Uh, and he is a very famous writer who people listen to. And she is not the person people listen to. Mm-hmm. And he is inviting people in mm-hmm. to the house. Like going out into the world and saying, yes, people are going to come in. She's like, I don't mm-hmm. want that. I don't want yeah. more people. And they claim to be like yeah. fans of his work. Yeah. And he's like, they're feeding his ego. They, and... they, they bring in this couple and they're, they're kind of like, uh, it's Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer. So we get yeah. some big stars in here. And he's like, I'm going to take them out. It's like, what? You're going to take them out into the world. And they go out and they come back and he's clutching his side. And there's a new person there. And now there's all these other people. Okay. And some of them are hating each other and, and they're killing each yeah, other. And, and, just and they're, and they're seems... abusing the house that they're yeah. living in. It's this really bizarre yeah. Yeah. set that Darren Aronofsky and it's, and it's her house and she loves her house and every time people like break something it breaks her heart and as the movie progresses and her it, her home is invaded mm. by more and more like people people but, but like people with like this cult like fervor mm. who are more and increasingly prone to treat the place like it's theirs and wreck it and hurt each other mm. and get violent and, and every and, time and she goes into another room, it feels like she's missed another 10 years and people are starting to get wild and they're turning to cannibals and mm. shit. Yeah, it, it turns into war by the, like, yeah. literal combat. Inside the, the house. Inside the house. Never leaving it. And, uh, uh, and of course, the, the symbolism is very obvious. It's mm. like college student level symbolism mm-hmm. where uh, clearly she's Mother Nature, uh-huh. Javier Bardem is God, and mm-hmm. the people are people. And... <laughs> This movie hates humanity really and, and, and the way it's humans yeah. just sort of have wrecked Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the denouement is this wonderfully oh, immature symbolism. Incredibly uh, immature. Uh, it, like explosion of symbolism, which I, I appreciate that kind of stuff. We need mm-hmm. to have expensive studio-backed pictures by ambitious filmmakers that are leading into that college student impulse to do something really brazenly abstract. Well, and, brazenly and I, and abstract, I like but I think even just to have, you know, a, a forthright, even bold hmm. point. I mean, I think you could even argue that Barbie has a part of that as well, because it's hmm. not just, it doesn't just have an undercurrent of feminism. It has feminism on its bones. Yeah, it yeah. has speeches about it. It's in your face. In a way, that movie is as in your face as Mother. It yeah, just it's, lets the, um, it's just got a spoonful of sugar to help it go down, whereas no, Mother no. is... Abrasive. Oh, it's oh like, do you do you like castor oil? Here's yeah. more castor oil to help it go down. It, it's like, uh, oh, it's, oh, do you do you want some uh, eye drops? Are your eyes feeling a little scratchy? Here's some steel wool. <laughs> it, it and golly, I I love how horrible this movie made me mm-hmm. feel. Um, and uh, there's baby in the movie. Something really horrible happens yeah, to that baby. Yeah, really Like yeah, on that, camera, that, that became uh, pretty legendary. Yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. I, I kind of. I was having a conversation about Mother with a friend of mine who had also seen it and also kind of liked it. And yeah. and we said, you know, we know this movie's not going to make money. No, <laughs> nobody's going to flock to see this this horrendous nightmare of a film. Just because it, its goal is to make you feel horrible. Mm-hmm. And it does it. Uh, I feel the same way about Bo is Afraid this year. Like, I that movie's that one, supposed yeah. to make you feel just as miserable as possible. Sure. Uh, but uh, they said that if it were a success, what would studios do? <laughs> How do you make a movie that's like Mother, that's trying to, to emulate know, that? And the only thing is like, oh, well, it's just going to be more infant trauma. That's it's going to be more, it's gonna be to more like surreal home invasion stories, basically. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't hate this movie the way you think I hate this movie. All right. Um, 
I think it is. I don't think it's Darren Aronofsky's worst movie. I think it's his second worst movie because uh, because the whale exists. Well, yeah, um, okay, yeah, the, the whale is, is yeah. pretty abysmal. But I, I don't hate this movie. I I don't. I I find it. You know, you made the point. It's obvious. It's embarrassingly obvious. But I, I like. That's, I, I get it. That's what I like about it. I get it's, it. The, the, but I that embarrassing I, obvious. I get it. But I think you know we both agree that it's there. It's just a matter of our personal taste. I, I, I so. find it incredibly unnuanced and. Mm. Frankly, to what end? What are we? What is the audience getting out of it? At least when like Barbie gives a feminist screed, you know that there are young people in the audience, kids probably taken by their parents, who are being introduced to a concept for the first okay, time. So the the, right. uh, the incredibly R-rated, you know, angry college student target demographic uh-huh. of mother gets it. <laughs> it well, doesn't really. So I don't know who's but helping. You're, you're thinking of of Barbie, and you're think you're imagining a, a very particular type of audience member, uh-huh. a, a young a young woman yeah. who's seeing this for the first time. Maybe maybe she's twelve, and she she might be getting hearing some of these concepts for the first time. I'm picturing, yeah, that that sort of seventeen year old goth who uh, you know has had conversations like mother. What if I wrote a story about how how misery is? <laughs> well, well, you, you're at the Barbie. I wrote Barbie in lowercase. Oh, with a lowercase b and exclamation. Yeah, Barbie. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm picturing like yeah the, the yeah. teenage asshole sure. who needs to hear this kind of movie I, and, and sort I, of like there, there's a little bit of, of subversion for listen, that a, that age bracket. He's probably seeing something this daring and nightmarish for the first time. Uh, when, when The Whale came out, I mainlined some Darren Aronofsky movies. I read an article in which I talked about every single film he ever made. Mm-hmm. I even watched, and tell me another critic who did this. Mm. Uh, Darren Aronofsky's first directing credit is mm. actually on a Windows 95 game called Soldier Boys. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, it was a, it was a full motion video like Sega CD shooter. Oh wow! Yeah, and he did, the, and he did the film segments for that. I, he did the I, no. The film segments are actually taken from a movie. It was, oh, a pre- ah. it was an existing movie called Soldier Boys, which was like Dirty Dozen, but with teenagers. And he did the, like pitch. the shots of like you know like the people like the 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 terrorists poking out from behind a tree and then getting shot, going ah! Like he did that shit. Yeah, yeah, I mean, fine. It needs a job. That's no, fine. No, yeah. It's not embarrassing. It's just a weird anecdote. And I went so far as to even watch that. <laughs> I watched a full playthrough of that game just so I could say I've seen everything Darren Aronofsky's ever done. Um, what I discovered about Darren Aronofsky, and what I don't think we really talk about enough, is that the majority of his films are biblical. Oh, they no, are, he's, they're biblical he's, he's directly. A deeply, d- deeply religious filmmaker. No, like it, uh, uh, Pi it deals about with the, Kabbalah. the, ta- the Talmud. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, of course, Noah is about Noah, Noah. And that's a very strange film, and I actually think it's one of his best. Uh, the Fountain is a deeply spiritual motion mm. picture. Uh, even The Wrestler is a film about modern martyrdom. Mm. Um, I appreciate that he is operating on that level. I appreciate that he is making these gigantic swings. Yeah, when he misses, so he this... misses hard. But I appreciate that he's trying. Okay. I, I just the, the sort of horror art house mm-hmm. uh, modern update of the book of Genesis mm-hmm. is uh, just a, a fascinating experiment to me. And I, I really, get... really dug it. Here's... Nobody went to go see it. Here, here's what I will say about this movie in its defense. All right. Because again, I don't think this is. A total disaster. I just find it an unpleasant watch. Um, I have seen very few... A lot of movies try to capture dreams, sometimes playfully, Mm. sometimes somewhat realistically, sometimes beautifully. Uh, But you described it as a panic 
nightmare yeah. uh, or an anxiety dream. And I've seen very few films capture that sensation yeah. as, as effectively as this. Yeah, so well, and, and something... there's something to be said for that. And I think the editing yeah. in this movie on that regard is a huge part of it and is quite masterful. And I think um, Darren Aronofsky is really good at that, a certain kind of, of mm. panic in his yeah. movies. You see that in Pi. Pi, there's a lot of shaking. It's a really jittery movie. Uh, Mother is a panic nightmare. Uh, Black mm-hmm. Swan. Like The camera's like right behind these characters' heads as they kind of walk really quickly down hallways, and you're really stressed out. Yeah. Uh, and you don't know why yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's sort of like what he's best at. When he tries to go for heart. Mm-hmm. That's when he starts to fail. <laughs> when has he? He hasn't really done that very often. Well, he did it. With, he tried to do it with the fountain, but he got lost in these big, heady religious concepts. Yeah, agreed. Um, he tried to do it with the whale, and we saw how that one turned. Oh, out. it's awful. Yeah, it's awful. Um, my, my next pick is also a film. This is uh, a film that was lost to obscurity for a while. It did come out. It was a huge box office bomb, but then it was completely forgotten about until it was rediscovered a few years ago. And re-released, and finally re-released in the proper context. It is also a horror movie starring a young ingenue. Okay. And it is also one of the most intense experiences I've ever had in my life, at least in the cinema. Uh, and that is Noel Marshall's Roar. Oh, I didn't see Roar. Oh, Roar. <laughs> okay, so Roar was written, directed, and produced by Noel Marshall who also co-starred in it. It was also co-produced by Tippi Hedren, who also starred in it with their daughter, Melanie Griffith. And she was a girl. She was, she, she was a kid. And yeah. this movie was made over the course of like a couple of years, actually. Uh, they are both, uh, I, I don't know if Noel Marshall's still alive, but uh, they're conservationists. And they've actually had like big cat sanctuaries. And this is something that they're very passionate about. They're very, they love big cats, many of whom are on the verge of extinction, like lions and tigers and such. And they wanted to make a movie with those cats as the stars. The movie they made was astoundingly irresponsible. Because they filmed with real cats. They filmed with real cats, and I want to make something... Full-grown lions and tigers. They are not trained lions and tigers. The lions and tigers are not in a pen or are behind like some kind of like safety material. They're just walking around the scene, interacting with the actors as they are acting their moments. There are times when you see like a little Marshall's just trying to have a conversation, setting up the plot. He owns this big cat sanctuary. The local government uh, wants to shut it down. So he's going to leave to deal with sort of this political crap. And then he'll come back and run his cat, big cat sanctuary. And while he's establishing all this plot, a lion, a full-grown lion, walks up to him, puts his paws on his back, and tries to bite his neck. <laughs> That's a kill move. Mm. Like that. that That's like how a real they life. kill you. That's that would murder you. This film had its cinematography by Jan de Bont. Jan de Bont, who would become Oops. a famous cinematographer of mm. films like. Basic Instinct and Robocop, and then would direct Speed and Twister. Jan de Bont was scalped making this movie. <laughs> that is not exaggeration. Scalp, peeled off, went and got it fixed, went back to work. 
Melanie Griffith in this movie is like the, the the plot is this guy leaves his cat sanctuary, doesn't realize that his wife and teenage daughter are coming to visit him, and they don't understand that his big cat sanctuary means the big cats walk around and do whatever the fuck they want. They'll walk into the house. The movie was billed as a comedy. Oh, how wacky these people don't know that they're gonna be dealing with all these big cats. Every single scene in this movie is absolutely fucking harrowing. Because you know all the actors are in legitimate, irresponsible danger. Melanie Griffith is like trapped under a door while like a cat's trying to claw its way through it. It's all in one shot. It's not even editing. (laughs) Holy shit. It's a terrifying motion picture that was promoted as a fun movie. For, like, the family and shit. It cost $17 million in the <laughs> early 80s. <laughs> what are That's they more that money on? Aliens cost less than that. The, the, the money was that it took a long time to film. There were, like, natural disasters, sadly. Like, there was, like, a... Uh, I think it was, like, a flood or something. Uh, and, like, a, I think one, one or more of the cats actually died. Real sad. That's terrible. Mm. Uh, obviously no one intended for that but like it sucks um but you watch this movie it is hypnotically terrifying <laughs> it is seriously one of the scariest motion pictures i've ever seen because even when you're watching a horror movie you know that like yeah freddy krueger shoved a giant q-tip into that guy's ear and it went out the other side mm. and that's really really scary but the guy is fine it's, it's a special, special effect, effect. Yeah. there's a certain amount of distance we have from it even in like you know, films that play like a snuff film, like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We still know we're watching a movie. We're not watching a movie in Roar. We're watching the most irresponsible home videos ever fucking made. And it's hypnotic, and it is terrifying, and if this sounds like something you can watch, I know not everyone it is, you're going to see one hell of a fucking movie. <laughs> and I, I, again, I know I'm hesitant to even necessarily say it's good, but it's an experience. Experience, <laughs> and by God, I had it, and I don't. It, it kind of doesn't belong on this list, and it kind of definitely belongs on this list. So that's where I'll go with that. Anyway, what's your next pick? Uh, let's see. Um, do I have anything like comparable to, to Roar? <laughs> well, you just had Mother. I think, I think it's really okay to segue. Yeah, away I guess this. so. Um, let's see here. I'm gonna go for uh, one of the more recent ones because I got mm. a few very recent movies sure. uh, on on my list. Um, some from the last year. Uh, I have fewer than I thought. Actually, I really actually, thought it would I, be more. I have two more from recent. the last year actually because there okay. were two really great movies that came out last year. Two movies that I really adored mm. that people just stayed away from in droves. Is it a tie or are we gonna be like one? No, the, well, these one are on two different okay. lines. I, I, I do have a, a tie. Um, actually, so do I. But uh, oh, I wonder if we did the same thing. But maybe so. We'll <laughs> okay. see. All right. Uh, but I was very fond of a Ridley Scott film, and I'm not a big Ridley mm. Scott fan, yeah. but his film The Last Duel oh, yeah. uh, made yeah. no money. Nobody yeah. went to go see The Last Huge Duel. Huge flop. Uh, speaking of movies with, like, uh, pretty obvious screenplays, uh, the screenplay was written by uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and Nicole Holofcener. Yeah. And it's a Rashomon story. Yeah, three, uh, we, three different characters three, three different relating characters the same events differently. T- telling the same yeah. story uh, from their own perspective. And of course, the, things are wildly different depending on their perspective. Um, the first story is by, from the Matt Damon. It takes place in medieval times. Uh, and it's about a war general who's out sort of fighting and protecting uh, the kingdom. 
and that's the Matt Damon character. And he sees himself as sort of this beleaguered soldier who has a wife back home who's been waiting for him and is constantly cheated out of the things he deserves by the, the local lords. And uh, he sees himself as like maybe a little bit simple, simple but very upstanding. Then we see this the same uh, story again from... Uh, the Adam Driver character mm-hmm. and Ben Affleck is also in it. He plays a big part in the, the Adam Driver story. And he's, yeah. he's the local Lord who is actually kind of manipulating politics. And he sees himself as very noble and being in charge of things and very smart and well-read and respected. And in that story, the Matt Damon character is much more of a lout and he's kind of a brutish character. He's sure. Very insensitive. Uh, and we learn, and then the third part of the story is told from Matt Damon's wife's perspective and how she is systematically abused by the system. Mm-hmm. She, uh, systematic, it would have to be. Um, yes, I suppose so, yeah. Uh, so she is ignored by her husband and assaulted by the Adam Driver character. And it all comes down to how her assault now reflects poorly on the men and mm-hmm. they have to duel. And if one of them dies, she dies too. <sighs> because that's how, how, how shitty, the system, how is, shitty yeah. the system was. Yeah. Um, I missed this movie, by the way, I didn't get a chance to see it. It's very clever. It's mm-hmm. very well written. Uh, Ridley Scott is one of those directors whose film is only as good as the screenplay he's been handed. Yeah, he likes to play with style, but he's not really good at things like theme and character. Yeah. Those things have to come from the screenplay. Yeah, if, if he won't bring something out of a script that it, the script doesn't already have, yeah. but if it has it, he'll do great. He films whatever is on the page with all of the the panache and intensity he can muster. Mm. But yeah, if he if he's got a shit screenplay, he'll make a shit movie. He's a lot like Tim Burton in that way, master yeah. stylists, but they're beholden to whatever is on yeah, the page. They cannot change uh, it. I, I love this one uh, interview I would read with Tim Burton once where yeah. he said he can't he he reads a script and he can't tell if it's good or bad. Yeah, that's he doesn't not know what, he what does. a good script looks like. He just knows how to, to handle those things visually. So he, he knows what he wants to visualize and he'll make that movie. You get yeah. a good screenplay, you get a great Tim Burton movie. Exactly. You get a shitty screenplay, you get a shitty Tim Burton. Movie. Like some people think Tim uh, Burton doesn't make good movies anymore. I defy you to watch Big Eyes. And tell Big me Eyes that is isn't great. one of his best movies. That's I one of his Big best Eyes. movies. And that's another one. It, I don't think it was a bomb because it didn't cost much, but nobody saw it. Hmm. And that's seriously, I would say that's one of his two or three best movies. Period. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's actually, yeah. it's one of this great little subgenre I like of like movies by studio directors, people who make a lot of movies for studios, uh, about how the studio system sucks <laughs> and how people who like commodify art are the worst fucking assholes on the entire hmm. planet. And then he goes back and makes another Disney movie. <laughs> that's but, where the money but, is but then, where... He make, but then he makes Dumbo which has that same message in it I know it's ironic <laughs> I, bless I, him for it but, but please give Tim Burton's Dumbo a chance because yeah. it has, it's it has nicely subversive weird actually. subversive elements to it it yeah. has some interesting visuals to it I, I can't think of a single movie that hates Disney more than Disney's Dumbo remake <laughs> like I really can't it's yeah. a it's hates it, like, Disney like Disney takes it on the chin and, and at the yeah. very end uh, Dumbo like kind of breaks out of Disney yeah. and starts flying around Disneyland. Uh-huh. There's like an, an analog for Disneyland in the movie. Yeah, it's very and, obvious. And the Walt Disney character, played by Michael Keaton, is in a literal Death Star. Yeah. They it's bought, half Epcot Center, half Death Star. It, but it looks... Because he's firing lasers out of it. <laughs> yeah. And destroying <laughs> his and own destroying park. destroying his own park. 
what's the commentary there? <laughs> it's not subtle. <laughs> and I remember having conversations with people literally outside the theater. <clears throat> and I was like, can you believe how radical that movie was? And everyone's like, no, that movie was one of the worst movies I've seen in a long time. I'm like, what? We did not watch the same movie just now. I don't know how you missed this. Mm. And it drove... Every once in a while that happens and it drives me at the fucking wall. Like, how did it's, we it seem, not... Like, it seems so clear to you. And we saw an entirely clear. different film and it drives me insane. But anyway, but yeah. uh, back to Ridley Scott. Uh, yeah. Because I've, I've liked some of Ridley Scott's movies. I don't like the bulk of his work. Sure. Um, because I think he... He needs good screenplays. True. Uh, he's made some excellent movies. I love Alien. Alien's great. I adore The Martian. Uh, yeah, The Martian's great. And and I really like The Last Duel, and I think it's because uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and mm-hmm. Nicole Holofsen are, are all incredibly talented screenwriters, mm-hmm. and they tried to make uh, this sort of feminist screed about how the system has always been broken uh, uh, in favor mm-hmm. of men. Yeah, uh, and yeah, Matt Damon and ben, um, Adam Driver and Jodie Comer. I, I don't think I mentioned her name. No, yeah. uh, she plays the wife character. Um, they're all excellent. They all handle their stories very, very well. And it ends on an incredibly bitter note Ooh. about how oh, we we finally triumphed, but what did we win? We won a broken world that still hates women. You almost killed me because I was assaulted. Yeah. This fucking sucks, guys. <laughs> And, and from what I understand, they split up the screenplay writing duties. Yeah, uh, so that along, Matt Damon wrote yeah. the Matt Damon part. And yeah, ben, like, uh, ben Affleck wrote the Adam Driver part. I think yeah. he was going to play it, but he, deci- he, he decided, like, the uh, uh, hedonistic king was a more interesting role, so he ended up playing that part, and he does it yeah. very, very well. And then uh, Nicole Holofsner wrote the Jodie Comer part. Yeah. and they, That's a cool idea. And, yeah, the... They don't really lock together, and they're not supposed to. They're supposed yep. to be at odds with one another. That's great. Um, and, yeah, because it's such a tight screenplay, it's a really great film. Nobody wanted to see that. Mm. Why, I guess... I mean, it came out in, uh, sort of at the tail end of um, pandemic lockdowns. So I mean, that, that didn't keep, help. That was Not keeping a lot of people away. And, and, again, this is me doing that thing again, where we're mm. kind of, like, making excuses well, for why this film wasn't... Well, you're trying to ask uh, yourself... Yeah. If you like the movie so much, why didn't other people or why weren't people interested in seeing it? Mm. Ultimately, a lot of it has to do with marketing. Yeah. And that's not our job. Mm. You know, the ability to get people to buy a ticket before they see the movie, by the way, Mm. is is tricky. And so much of the uh, filmmaking, the occasional movie that makes money over a long time, like Elemental, was initially like, Opened was, very it, low this summer. It was considered a bomb when it opened because but, it opened low, but it's continued to make money. Over and now time. it's actually incredibly successful, and that just goes to show you that our system, where we assume if a movie doesn't make money on its opening weekend, it must be a huge bomb, mm. is and, flawed and because that, that's not the way it always works. Well, the problem is once the word gets out, that's not encouraging for audiences. Oh, this is bombing; it must be bad. Often that's the case. Uh, but uh, yeah, it used to be movies had more time to build on word of mouth. It happens like once a year. We get like one movie that like uh, you know opened okay maybe or didn't open great, but it just sticks around. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once was that last year, where you know, it was an independent movie. It had a pretty good opening average, but it was a small release. But people kept seeing it. Yeah, yeah. even though it was never. I don't think it was ever in the number one movie at the box office, or if it was, it was only like once. But like it just kept the audience yeah, coming know, because um, word of mouth built. The, the highest grossing movie that was never number one at the box office, I think to this day is still My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah. Because that, that was one that just played for literally months yeah. on end. It just kept on playing and kept on playing. It yeah, was like number, number three, number four. And it four. cost nothing. 
Yeah. That was like a, a very eight, low budget. Eight million dollars, and yeah, yeah, ended up making yeah. hundreds of millions that was a of dollars. Huge, but huge hit. People and, forget. And you that. wonder why she wants to make another sequel. It might yeah. be a fact, Greek wedding. Three. She was Oscar nominated out. for that movie. The screenplay yeah. got an Oscar nomination for Christ's sake. And it's not even a great. It's an okay screenplay, but it's very formulaic. It's just a sweet little rom com that's hard to find fault with, <laughs> and just people liked it. There you go. Anyway, moving on. Um, again, I don't have a Rashomon movie, but I do have a big, giant epic. Okay. That um, you know kind of came out recently, but also uh, came out in the mid nineteen eighties, and people hated it <laughs> because David Lynch's Dune is a weird film, man. That's true. That one was a bomb, wasn't that it? That was when a gigantic, gigantic bomb. Um, the the story goes: um, uh, George Lucas was looking yes. for various filmmakers to make uh, Return of the Jedi. Yes, he didn't want to direct. He ended up finding a British director named Richard Marquand, who is not really well known for much uh, other well, than Return of the Because he died, actually, not yeah. very long after that. I think he only made like one or two more movies, mm. and then he just didn't have a long career afterwards. Uh, and unlike um, Irvin Kirshner, he hadn't kind of made a name for himself beforehand. Yeah. Um, but but Irv- yeah, one of the people like, he talked to was David Lynch. Yeah, uh, he, he talked to David Cronenberg, he talked to David Lynch, mm. uh, and, and a lot of their ideas, Cronen- some of Cronenberg's ideas, I think, were parlayed into the final screenplay of Return of the Jedi. I think some of the Jabba uh, the Hutt stuff might have some Cronenberg in it, but I could be so, wrong about but, that. But it's it's like a distant echo by the time I got to the yeah. movie. There's more Cronenberg um, in Total Recall than there is in yeah, Return of the Jedi. Yeah, because he, 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 he almost made that movie. He, he actually really did far. a lot for, for Total Recall. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he talked to David Lynch. You can find the interview online where he talks about oh, yeah. the interview he had with uh, George Lucas. And like, I, I had... I. I, he took me into his office and he showed me this Wookiee and then we had a salad and I got a big headache. Uh, like, <laughs> it tells this really bizarre Just story. Completely uninvested in the world that George I, Lucas I don't, created. I don't know what a Wookiee is. I don't care. Yeah. But uh, uh, he instead made Dune. He wanted to yeah. do a big studio sci-fi epic and he was allowed to do this in a little bit more his way. Mm-hmm. He changed a lot from Frank Herbert's book to mm-hmm. sort of match his sensibility. And... He captured how alien the future was. That's what I love about what he did with Dune. It's one of the yeah. things I love about what he did with Dune. Um, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, at least the, the first half, the part that we've seen, um, it's it's a handsome production, but it's also frustratingly literal. Mm. It is just, it takes everything bizarre and strange and heady and surreal about the material, and it flattens it so mm. that it is just the plot. And I find that incredibly dull. David Lynch's Dune, which condenses the entire gigantic narrative into one motion picture. And it is just falling all over itself. <laughs> it's like um, it's like pickup sticks. Mm. They should all be in a line, but instead they're just on this pile right here. And you can kind of make out of the way it's supposed to look. Remember um, Michael Keaton's speech from The Flash yes. about the multiverse? About the, like the a plate of spaghetti. of spaghetti? That's Dune. That's Dune, yeah. basically. Um... And yet I love it. Uh, oh, I adore this Dune. The Dune is incredible. The, first off, I'll take the production design in David Lynch's Dune over Denis mm. Villeneuve's Dune any day of the oh. week. It is... Star- it, you know, Denis Villeneuve's version is just stark. That's all it is. David Lynch's is stark yet organic. It's, really it is, or, it's actually really ornate and opulent. Yeah, yeah. This, this is a story about the royals of the galaxy. Yeah. And it tries to make everything look kind of strangely regal. Well, like, everything, like, the, the Harkonnens, mm. uh, they're not just, like, in the Nevil and Oves, they're just pale and fat and assholes. In David Lynch's version, they're hedonists. Mm. They are 
they're oily, gross people who will just fuck anything and eat anything. That's that's the kind of consumption that they represent. Yeah, there's, that's there's, all. The, it's all about my own personal just pleasure. Yeah, Baron, Baron Harkonnen. There's a scene in the movie that that yeah. still disturbs me to this day, where yeah. he, he calls in his boy. Like, this this boy is going to be brought in as a sexual plaything. Yeah, it's really and, creepy. And, and uh, they have um, these little heart. Get heart stoppers. Oh, it's a, it's a, um, it's like it a called? heart valve of some kind. Yeah. Like this little thing implanted oh, in their chest the with a called? handle on it. And he, it, Baron Harkonnen, uh, he calls in these boys and he kind of paws at them. Heart plugs. And he pulls out the heart plug. Yeah. And that exposes his heart. He just starts bleeding to death immediately. Yeah. And you can see the sort of the sadness on his face as he realizes he's dying. That's the hedonism he wants. That's he just the, wants to kill this. It's this kid. like Caligula, Holy Roman yeah. Emperor shit, and it's just truly, truly terrifying. And it's also like way more like sort of psychologically kind of complete. Mm. Like you just get the 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 sensation that these characters are actually full strange human beings with fears and pleasures and yeah the plot's unwieldy the plot was always unwieldy there's a reason yeah. Denis Villeneuve did it in two movies they weren't doing that at the time you're I mean they weren't doing that in the 80s that was not an option to hmm. split it in half I don't think anyone made that suggestion no I can't think of any there aren't a lot the only movie I can think of that did that like previously and there may be more examples uh like on purpose was uh, Richard Lester's The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. And even that was originally intended to be a four-hour epic with an intermission. Oh, uh, they just made it into two movies. They just made it into two movies. Because they, they work as two different movies. The second half is not as good as the first. The first is classic. But regardless, David Lynch had to make this fucking movie. And he had to condense it down to a reasonable time so that it could play in fucking theaters. And he did it. And it's strange... And you can appreciate that he wanted to make something that treated sci-fi like a strange dream. Hmm. And he did. <laughs> and it is captivating and weird. And, and it's a little obtuse. To be perfectly frank, it might actually be a good idea <coughs> excuse me, to watch Denis Villeneuve's version first. Just so that the plot is completely clear to you. Yeah, because yeah. that's kind of all that movie is good for. And then watch David Lynch's Dune. It, it's like... um. When you read a Shakespeare play without ever having seen it, it, can, uh, it might be a little impenetrable because there's just mm. so much florid language and you're just trying to... Yeah, the the, the, the plot the, might not be the, clear. The meaning of the language yeah. and the multiple meanings as you go. But if yeah. you watch it performed, it becomes clear this is the emotional thrust of the scene and here's the arc of the plot. And then the language you can appreciate for the way that it... Uh, capitalizes on and like underlines and elaborates on all of that narrative... That's how I feel about David Lynch's Dune. Hmm. It's Shakespeare. <laughs> but it's fucking weird. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Um, I love that this kind of the stuff, because I've read Frank Herbert's Dune. Yeah. I haven't read the follow-up books. I've heard that's a trap. Yeah, uh, they're very fucking weird. Like, well, they're they're really weird, and they take place over the sprawling time frame, like tens of thousands of years pass over the, the yeah. course of the narrative. And um, I've heard you, you can read Dune, and you can put it down. The minute you crack open the second book, you're stuck through the next six. Like, it's like, well, I can't just sort of, you can't leave it like partway through the second book. You're sort of like on this track now. Yeah. You're you're committed. This is your life. Not because you love it, just because you need to, like your brain needs to unlock this thing. (laughs) 
So I haven't opened the sequels yet. Okay. I, haven't, I haven't read Dune Messiah. Uh, but I've read Dune. And uh, I, I it's was like actually... It's a best-selling sci-fi novel of all time. Which I, I was yeah. led to Dune by David Lynch's movie. I actually yeah. like David Lynch. Uh, was very fond of Eraserhead. I love mm-hmm. Dune. Uh I did like how oblique it was. I had a little trouble yeah. figuring out, like, wait, Dr. Yui has a... And that guy's a mentat? What is the... Yeah. He has the imperial... I don't understand a lot of what this stuff means. Yeah, so they, don't, they, don't, up, they don't stop to explain everything. Yeah, that. so I ended up reading the book, and the book has a glossary, thank goodness, <laughs> um, because there's all these oblique sci-fi terms that Frank Herbert's making up, so I was able to sort of, like, go, what does Feta Keen mean again? Uh, I think at the, like, at the premiere, they handed out a glossary to people in the audience, and that mm. put it, that got them off on the wrong foot. Yeah. Because people were like, oh, this isn't going to be good. Yeah, <laughs> That's sh- not a great start. Shy, shy Halud, fuck you. Uh, like, George Lucas only made up a couple of words. I don't know, man. <laughs> And you can follow it. You know, yeah. I know what a droid is. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward, right? The force? It's a force. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> Done. What What the the gum jabar? I don't care. Quetzat's had a what? Mary <laughs> <laughs> had a little Quetzat's had a rat. I don't know. Uh, Very strange. So I, I was able to sort of get the story when I finally read the book and then I went back and watched David Lynch's version the day I finished reading the book mm-hmm. and it's like it's like skim reading Cliff's notes at that point like everything's mm-hmm. speeding past like whoa whoa slow down <laughs> it's so much there's way too much going on and there's integrity to it yeah I like that I, I like that he overstuffed this movie with as much of these big ideas a lot of them were sort of borrowed from the previous production which was uh, done by Alejandro Jodorowsky yeah he'd been working um, on that for a while and there's a big documentary about the movie he almost made of David Lynch's Dune and how pieces of that wound up in other sci-fi movies so a little yeah. only little pieces of it made it into David Lynch's production he mostly did that himself but yeah Alien uh, mm-hmm. took a and uh, Star Wars took a lot of what he had put mm-hmm. together um H.R. Giger did the designs that yeah. ended up on Alien. Uh, the, the saga of the films of Dune mm-hmm. it, uh, are as fascinating as the books themselves. And and I really dig Dune. I love how complicated it is. Some people say it's the sci-fi version of Lord of the Rings, just because it's so lore-heavy. Mm-hmm. But the tone is totally different. I had, I had a conversation with someone online, and they were, mm-hmm. I was talking about how... Um, and I was talking about how like there aren't a lot of like epic sci-fi fantasy movies that are based on kind of something original not an original ip mm-hmm. and they said what about dune and i said dune is based on a book it's based on and, a, whole, a whole lot of books and 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 but they were just like yeah but it's a book that like people haven't read i don't think i think warner brothers made this movie because denis villeneuve was passionate about it. i'm like dune is the best-selling science fiction novel of all time <laughs> dune is a massive series of books and people have spent decades trying to get versions of this movie off the ground Dune has a built-in audience. I don't know if it's a billion-dollar audience. I'm actually very curious to see what kind of box office the second half of Dune is going to do. Because the, f- the first one came out simultaneously on HBO Max and in theaters because of the, the, the oh. pandemic. And also because of the pandemic, you know, that certainly affected the box office. I wonder how much money it's actually going to make. Because it's got that big asterisk next to its success in the first half. Because it made as much money as one might expect it to under the circumstances. Without those circumstances, fingers crossed that the you know latest surge isn't going to get too bad. Um, is the second half of Dune going to be a huge hit? Or is it just going to kind of make the same amount of money? Is that just the audience that the movie has? I don't know. I'm kind of curious about it. But anyway, um, moving on. 
Uh, let's see. It's, uh, it's, it's on you. I, I did. I I like Dune. I, I didn't even think of Dune. Just because ah. Dune's part of like just David Lynch's filmography. Yeah, and, but it's a part even yeah. he's embarrassed by. And a lot of people disregard it. I remember like, I've, I've said before, like, you know, mm. hey, if you like Denis Villeneuve's Dune, you should see David Lynch's. And everyone's like, we will not be doing that. It's better. I don't know. You should see it because it's better. It, it's really good. <laughs> it's strange, but it's really good. Yeah, it's... Yeah. It, um, I also have a sci-fi epic, and you probably saw this one coming, but I'm a big fan of Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Yeah, yeah, I can um, see that. It didn't it, make my list, but I did think of it. it. It was such a bomb, it killed the studio that that made it. Uh, mm-hmm. Europa Pictures is no more because of Valerian. Mm-hmm. Nobody went to go see Valerian. It's based on a series of French comic books mm-hmm. from like the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Which also inspired Star Wars. Well, it, it inspired Star Wars, and it's kind of curious... <clears throat> I guess it's not curious, but this is a phenomenon that happens. Uh, they make uh, Valerian comics. George Lucas reads those comics, makes something reminiscent of those comics in a movie mm-hmm. called Star Wars. And that becomes so huge that uh, decades later, someone thinks, why don't we just go back? And do, do Valerian. Do, the, do Valerian, yeah. do the original thing. It inspired Star Wars. Surely the Star Wars fans would flock to something like this. They, in fact, they might like it even more because mm-hmm. it predates Star Wars. Star Wars outstripped it. Nobody cares anymore. They yeah. made this big expensive movie and people just dismissed it outright. That's how I feel about yeah. uh, you know the Fantastic Four coming out right after The Incredibles. Yeah. The Incredibles yeah. just kind of drank their fucking milkshake. Mm. You know, mm. it's, right. it was so, so good. The Fantastic Four movie couldn't compete with that and yeah. that was um, the end of that shit. Uh, it was made by Luke Besson, who's a creep and you know, yeah, I, mean, it's I, I can't, can't, yeah. can't apologize for that. But he did uh, make a film that is quirky and fun and just one of the most visually astonishing films uh, that, yeah. that I've seen. It, uh, it, you, we left the theater uh-huh. seeing this movie, and we were on an escalator at uh, Universal City Walk, mm. uh, you know, going back to our car. And you were just, I think you screamed, My eyes! My eyes are orgasming! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, it, yeah. It, it'll make your eyes have an orgasm. That's yeah. that's kind of kind of what I it's felt about this visual. It's, 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 it, it's, one of the things that Star Wars did that was kind of revolutionary at the time was it took these bizarre futuristic alien worlds and uh-huh. made them feel very real and lived in. Yeah. Things weren't polished. Things had use. Yeah, you know, paint the, chips on those yeah, spaceships. The, the, yeah, yeah. the Millennium Falcon is a jalopy, technically. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. But there's something about that where also I think because it now felt lived in, we sometimes forget to make it look astonishing. Yeah, and I think George Lucas tried to do that a little bit in the prequels to limited success. Valerian has some moments in it that are genuinely astonishing to behold. Yeah, like they're they're creative and beautiful to look at, and Luc Besson lets us look. The, yeah. the filmmakers designed these gigantic vistas, and I feel like we've seen the those sorts of things in other special effects bonanzas sure. of recent vintage. But the characters are so cool, and that's the world they live in. They're not astonished. Yeah. So the filmmakers don't let us be astonished either. We're supposed to just say, "Oh, that's just yeah. the world." Just they're the, very this, yeah. Like like um, there are there aren't a lot of moments in like the Marvel movies where something bizarre happens and everyone's like, "Whoa!" And yeah, people just go, "Wow!" Or yeah. or, or the too camera busy playing just, a joke, you know? Or the camera just lingers for a while and lets yeah. us say, "Wow, that is astonishing," and just yeah. lets it be there. Yeah, let and, us be amazed. And the by characters what you just create. sort of walk off. That is astonishing, and that's the the message. That's something I love about the Lord of the Rings movies is that I think they actually remembered that. There's moments where they like are on a boat sailing down a river, and there are these giant oh, there's statues. There's a glory shot of the statue, and they're just like, yeah. "Wow, look at those!" Yeah. And you know what? 
yeah, look at those. Those are beautiful. Mm. That's an incredible imaginative thing that yeah, it, that you created. Uh, and I, I'm in the moment in this world, and like I would be taken aback by that. There's a, a, a chase sequence at the beginning of Valerian yeah. that takes place in two dimensions simultaneously. Yeah. How the fuck did they do that? It's a, uh, a logistical they, nightmare. They take a, a group of tourists into a, a big market called Big Market, and they're allowed <laughs> to purchase things from another dimension they have these they're outfitted yeah. with these helmets they can look into and interact with the other dimension so long as they pass through these like special filters yeah they're not in the dimension but they can interact with it yeah and the main character valerian uh has his hand in a box allowing him to reach into the other dimension while staying here uh-huh. so the box is floating around in another dimension he's back in like this desert plane And they're able to edit this and Mm. visualize this in such a way where you know exactly what's happening in space in two dimensions simultaneously. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Uh, I haven't seen that something like that in a science fiction movie before, at least not successfully. My favorite bit in Valerian and the set, I mean, I have two favorite bits in this movie. The first one is the opening sequence, which is actually really beautiful. Oh, on on uh, on, on the, the, on the in, spaceship introductory, yeah the, yeah, the invention of Alpha. They uh, their humanity creates a space station, and then they have first contact with an alien, and mm. they shake hands with the alien, mm. and then. They keep well, meeting the, news. Hold, hold on. Uh, before yeah. that, though, oh, sorry. It, it starts out as a space station uh, with other nations. Oh, yeah. Other like, humans fly like, up to the like space station. The Russians show yeah. up and shake the hands of the Americans on the and, space and, station and, and so it, on. And with each each sh- handshake, uh, the station gets like a little slicker. It builds yeah. out a little bit more. They, they like attach the Russian space station to the American space station. And then an alien ship shows up and they make first contact with them. And there's a handshake. And they attach the alien spaceship mm. to the space station. And then there's a series of increasing handshakes as humanity starts spreading out into the stars and diplomacy is really see, beautiful characters and get older their yeah. children take over the children get older yeah. yeah generations pass and and the space station gets so big that it ends up becoming like a danger to earth it's going to affect earth's gravity so mm. they send it off to be its own thing and now it is a city of 1000 planets and mm. every spaceship that has arrived at it has attached itself to it and created its own ecosystem within it so there's a scene later in the movie where uh, our, our hero, Valerian, mm. tragically miscast Dane DeHaan. Worst part of the movie. He's, 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 he's okay. A great, he's, he's a great actor, but he can't play that kind he's, of a he, role. You, yeah. This is where you actually needed a Chris Pratt. Ironically, you, 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 uh, you yeah. need someone who's who is somebody's that a, a little bit more like cavalier, dazzling, and kind of a cad. Like you, you, you need a swashbuckler. You needed yeah. a Han Solo type, and they got this kind of like soulful, broody guy, and it yeah. didn't quite work. It, it's miscast. It doesn't completely hurt the movie, but it actually does hurt the movie a little bit. But there's a scene where he needs to get from like one part of the ship to another part of the ship, and <laughs> it's it's a labyrinth. You have to like go around all these different places it's and a like thousand, a thousand planets yeah. in this one city. Yeah. However, if he just runs in a straight line, busting through walls like the Hulk, Hmm. he can get there really fast. But in order to do that, and he was all in one shot, he's going to travel through, like... Dozens of different planets and environments and bizarre the biomes and ecosystems. Yeah. yeah, and it's just this incredibly visualized sequence that is one hundred percent cinema magic. Hmm. It is astounding. You might have noticed we haven't really talked about the plot well, because the, the plot is kind of weird well, and it the involves plot, the plot is about a, a, a cover up about a war crime and yeah. uh, involves this species of very Navi-like aliens Mm -hmm. uh, called, uh, from the planet Mul, and uh, a bizarre creature that they call the Mul Converter that can, like, something about its biology means it can replicate energy rather than digest it. Like, if you feed it, like, let's say you fed it a diamond, it would poop out diamonds, which is... Multiple diamonds, Which is 
a little immature, but regard and and I think that also at kind of it, makes the plot a little bit more ridiculous it, than it needs to be. At least it doesn't be, like poop it out of its butthole. It, like kind of like does. kind of sprays it out of its body. It but, kind yeah. of does. Anyway, uh, but yeah, it's this thing that like seriously could change the economy of the entire universe, and and, and on top of it all, in order to get this thing, there like war crimes were committed against the species, and there's a whole big cover up. And Valerian and Laureline, played by Cara Delevingne, who is well cast in this movie, and she's, she's, she's terrific. She knows and exactly the movie she's in. She's good in this yeah. movie, and she actually has good chemistry with Dane DeHaan. Yeah, and, and I actually like the relationship between Valerian and Laureline. Yeah. The original comics were called Valerian and Laureline. They dropped yeah. her t- name from the title for some I th- reason. I think in the comics she was like he had like plucked her out from like an Earth in an earlier time line and oh, then right. like they went on more adventures together so it was kind of like seen from her perspective for a while of memory source. but it, in in the movie she's like like they're equal they're like equally or he's like slightly above in rank but they're officers for the same like military organization. they treat each other as equals and they treat each other as equals um they're clearly attracted to each other but they express their attraction in sort of like I don't want to say bickersome because that makes it sound like a little bit too more too capery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's they, they kind of like are at each other's throats a lot. Yeah, and he's really always declaring his love for her, and they're both kind of rolling their eyes at the fact mm-hmm. that they're in love with each other. Mm-hmm. And I like the way that like they're in love with each other in a way that is unique to them, mm-hmm. and and I appreciate that about their chemistry. Mm-hmm. I feel like we still needed an adventurer type to play Valeria, and Dane DeHaan is not that. Yeah, but I'm too distracted by the visuals of this movie and the novel science fiction concepts in this movie, yeah. and some of the the bizarre worlds they enter. Yeah, uh, you know, it starts off with we need to find this mool converter. You know, 90 minutes later, Cara Delevingne is underwater, sticking her head in a jellyfish's ass to get a psychic vision as to where uh, Valerian like, has been kidnapped off to. Oh, yeah, and I like that and Valerian's the one who gets kidnapped in this thing, by they, the way. They both she get kidnapped, res- oh, yeah, and they, they take turns ki- rescuing yeah, each other. So that's, that's kind of a fun dynamic. Yeah. And the way we got there... It's kind it's of organic. So, it, like, it just kind of... It's organic and also kind of confusing, and it's... it. Listen, again... Luke Besson turned out to be a creep, and it turns out he was right in front of us all along. Uh, he made a movie about what a creep. Yeah, he, he it's, yeah watched, it's, it's really hard to watch Leon the Professional, uh, knowing what we know, and it should have been hard the whole time. But um, I, I will say this: I understand if you never want to watch a Luke Besson movie again. That's totally fair. Uh, there is no conceivable way you can spend enough money on Valerian and Laureline that Luc Besson will make money on it now. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. It lost so much it's, money <laughs> that it's actually a pretty safe bet that if you spend money on this, he will probably not That's get true, any yeah. of it. So there's, he, he, he you can, might feel better okay, about that. So think of this. Uh, you make a, mo- a movie, you're spending money on a movie, you're digging a hole, and people come to see it and they fill the hole back up. And the filmmakers get anything that heaps up off, off of the top of the hole. Once yes. It's, once it's full. Generally speaking, that's the way it works. It's still a very deep hole. <laughs> yeah, at this point. I don't think that hole's ever getting filled. <laughs> so, Especially now that like the DVD market is dead. Yeah, like there's yeah. just there's no way it's ever making its money back. Um, and, and when you get see something on streaming, as we all know, nobody gets royalties from that. No, so, not um, well, hope, again, hopefully that will change, but it won't change for the Directors Guild because nope. they made their deal so, very quickly so and very I'll badly. Even if you hate Luke Besson and think he's a creep. You're not giving him anything That's by watching this movie. And someone who knows econ- economics might be able to say that we're wrong about that, but I think we're right about that. Mm. But in any case, so you, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Anyway. Um, it's, you, on, it's on Prime Video. Yeah, you brought up a, a sci-fi movie that is visually dazzling. And that actually is a nice segue into my next pick, because 
something happened, and I and I, it's so easy to blame Marvel for a lot of things. So I will. Uh, Marvel made a lot of great movies. Some not so great movies. Very few bad movies, and most of them were very recently. Hmm. They created. There, there are some stinkers. There, there are some stinkers, but they're more recent. The stinkers, like the ones that are genuinely horrible, like yeah. Quantum Mania. Yeah, they're coming with greater frequency now. That's true, and that's not a great. That's not a great direction to go in. But for a while, the miracle of Marvel movies was their consistency. You would get a three-star solid mm. superhero movie every a, single time. A, a shiny bauble to enjoy in the summer. Occasionally yeah. you get in the three and a half. Once or twice you get a four-star. Mm. But it was very consistent. But because of that consistency, they flattened out the artistic style of all of those movies. Everything was made uh, that, with an that, eye towards... The house style. Everything man. was made with an eye towards the house style. Everything was made with an eye towards making sure the movies all felt of a piece. And that piece was just looking okay. Uh, Black Panther looks stunning. Wakanda Forever looks stunning. Those are exceptions to a good rule. I would argue the most recent Guardians of the Galaxy is very pretty as well. But mostly these aren't visually very daring movies. Audiences were given multiple opportunities over the last decade and a half or so uh, to embrace visually daring movies. And they said, no, <laughs> we don't want them. Uh, and I, it's fascinating. I got to see this in real time. I was, I was in a theater that was showing a trailer for Valerian and Laura Land, or uh, Valerian City of Thousand Planets. Oh. Uh, and... At first, the audience didn't know what the movie was because they didn't recognize the IP, they didn't recognize the actors. They just saw the sci-fi stuff and I heard people go, oh, is this a new Star Wars trailer? Mm. Oh, shit, this looks really fucking amazing. And then the title came up and they saw that it wasn't Star Wars and they were like, oh, never mind. And I'm like, yeah, what? The, you the, were dazzled! The, the, they won't, they're, they're not dazzled. They, yeah. They're dazzled by the, the idea of seeing the, more IP. The Gestalt movie. Yeah, and that was, that was a very illuminating moment for me. So, they've tried on multiple occasions, and I have at least one more example of this, to make a, even a genre film, even one that's like based on a pre-existing intellectual property, but that was bold and stylish and a little ambitious. And yet, and I, and I, and I kind of get it, but I am disappointed. Uh, I think when audiences said no to Tron Legacy, mm. that's when we got Marvel. Because that was like, Disney was trying to like make more action-oriented, mm. uh, uh, you know, films for sort of mass audiences, what they I, considered I male audiences. I swear you're going to go with Mortal Engines here. But I, yeah. I like Mortal Engines a lot. Right. And Mortal Engines is some really fucking amazing visual effects in it. The, the opening sequence where two, oh two literal cities are chasing so cool. each other. And that's, then that's like, pretty cool. And then there's like a chase scene as one of the cities is literally eating the other one with giant chainsaws. Hmm. It's well, while so people are running through great. the city that's being eaten yeah. by the other city. Oh, it's really cool. The movie itself, like the plot is like so formulaic that it, it kind of doesn't quite make my like, list. But The characters don't really stand out. No, Although the, 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 the robot Frankenstein was really cool. The yeah. robot Frankenstein played by... Um, uh, uh, I forgot I played the robot from From Avatar. The main bad guy. Oh, is it Stephen Lang? Stephen Lang. Oh, okay. Stephen Lang. Before he did the mm. mocap in Avatar 2, he was a mocap character in Mortal Engines, and he's a great robot Frankenstein. Like, he's really fucking cool. What an and, interesting and I, character that is. And I, and I only remember the name of the lead character because of his line reading. Oh, yeah. It's like, 
What, what, what do you need out there in the prison, Robot Frankenstein? Hester Shaw. <laughs> what are you going to find? Hester Shaw. Yeah, th- that's on my honorable mentions, the more yeah. lines. It's, it got dramatically shat upon when it came out. It is visually stunning. Didn't quite make my list. Tron Legacy does. Uh, it is based off of another box office bomb. Disney was like, hey, we made this extremely ambitious visual effects spectacle in the early 80s that took place inside a computer where every single like data file was its own character and they glowed in this really bizarre, beautiful way and it had some of like they the o- earliest... They overspent on it. Oh, they overspent yeah, they, on they, it. That's they, they... No, not pretending otherwise. I don't know why they had to go to all that trouble to make yeah. something that looked like that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not even fighting it, dude. But um, yeah, they they had early CG effects before that was really a thing. Um, and it's a neat movie. Uh, one of the problems is that with that original movie is that their visual effects had to be so particular. They had to plan them out so far in advance that they got locked into early screenplays and visualizations and stuff. And they couldn't change anything later when they realized it wasn't working. Mm. Normally if you're shooting a scene and it's not working, we're like, okay, let's do reshoot it. Or let's move the camera over here. or Let's go from another uh, approach or perspective or let's rewrite the scene. They couldn't do it. They were just stuck with what they had. But although Tron was not successful, it did build up a little bit of a cult and Disney was like, okay, well, People seem to dig Tron. It's referenced a lot in popular culture. Maybe the time has come to do another Tron. It's a it's something that maybe people are more excited about now, now that they have more computers and video games and things. And so they came out with Tron Legacy. It was directed by Joseph Kaczynski, who went on to direct Top Gun Maverick and become, you know, one of the most successful filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a huge bomb. And it's a shame because, A, it is gorgeous. <laughs> the world inside the grid, the name of like the inside the computer, uh, is inspired by the visual aesthetic of the original, but now thanks to the use of you know more in- impressive CG, um, it has like rich inky blacks and bright beautiful neon colors that fly around the screen in these incredible ways. Uh, the score is by Daft Punk, and it is one of the great scores, as far as I'm concerned. It's just one of the great movie scores. It's great it's moody you would think it would just be like kind of you know dancey dancey and sometimes it is but mostly it's actually a mood piece and this is a story about and i know some people were mad it's like hey shouldn't everything be like different now with computers no the whole point is uh jeff bridges's character from the original was creating a self-contained system Hmm. and going inside the grid like he did in the original movie to play god but within the self-contained system, all of a sudden, there came stuff he didn't create. Life mm. just yeah. spontaneously com- was created. The, and the, the computers become conscious. And it, yeah. it was abstract in the first movie, and now we're actually dealing with sort of the concept of the, that. The, yeah, the, the actual ramifications of that. And it's actually, like, I wouldn't call it, like, a, a deeply spiritual movie because it's more about the intellectual concept of it. But it's got some really heavy ideas in it. Um, and now, of course, because, you know, mother, uh, people, uh, they're all at <laughs> war with each other. Um, and so uh, Flynn's son, years later, goes inside the grid, finds his father there, and then it finds out he's it's not his father. It's the evil, like, program version of his father. But his father is trapped in there, and he's like this rejected messiah with godlike powers inside of the 
uh, inside of the grid. Um, visually dazzling, sonically dazzling. The story is, I think, maybe abstract, arch, um, clinical enough uh, that it might keep some people at a distance. I can appreciate that. Um, I think that's what it's doing on purpose. I think that's its style. I think if you, you could try to get on that wavelength because you're going to appreciate the movie more. The, the big problem with the movie for me is then they were really big on this. We found a way to de-age Jeff Bridges so he'll look like his same character. Like he entered the grid in the early 80s and he'll look the way he did back then. Uh, he doesn't. He looks like a CG character shaped like Jeff Bridges. Uh, if we had only seen that inside the computer exactly. and it was a computerized person, that would have been fine. Because but that turns out to be another character. They te- yeah. yeah, they teased it earlier in the movie, though, and yeah. they actually did a, like a CGI de-aging on yeah, him and the we- special effects. I mean, they're still not there, but they certainly weren't there then. We, we see him in person, like, t- telling his son a bedtime story about Tron. And then we see him in, like, an early, like, um, uh, press conference hmm. uh, talking about his big ideas. And this is the CG version. So that when we see the CG version in the grid, uh, we, we, we are supposed to think that's, like, the same guy. Uh, but, like, it really only makes sense if you know that that's a computer program. It actually isn't convincing at all. As a real Jeff Bridges, they 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 overshot themselves, and they ended up shooting themselves in the foot mm-hmm. on that. But regardless, I admire this movie. I think it is just an incredibly dazzling visual accomplishment. I think it actually tries to have genuinely big ideas, which very few sci-fi blockbusters, especially Disney type movies, mm-hmm. even attempt. Um, and anyway, regardless of whether or not it is exquisite or, or flawless um, it was ambitious in a way that I think we might have been better off rewarding because then we might have had more ambitious movies rather than keep coming with the pablum yeah, the I, generic pablum I please like, that's what people want I, I feel like they're they're trying some big ideas but they're not really thinking them through and that, that kind of bugged me about Tron Legacy well, uh, it's like, oh, this is about theology, but we're going to back off from that real fast. Uh, uh, they export a little bit more than you're giving it credit for. Mm. And again, you know, and this isn't a great excuse, but they, they were hoping to make more in the mm. hopes of exploring that. They, like, Killian Murphy is in this movie for one scene. Oh, yeah. At the beginning. And he plays the, the son of David Warner's character. David Warner played the villain in the original movie. Clearly, they wanted him to be in more, in the sequels more. Yeah. That will never happen. Bummer. There's definitely groundwork laid for, like, future stuff that doesn't get paid off. And, you know, we never got those. So all we get is this one movie, and it feels a little incomplete. And that is unfortunate. Um, but I think I think it, they cover a little more ground than you're giving credit uh, for. Maybe so. I, I also find the uh, the protagonist, uh, Jeff Bridges' son, to be... Gary Hedlund, yeah. A little generic. To be nothing. Like, he's, 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 he's the This season's Sam Worthington. You know, just I, the off-the-rack kind of an actor. I, I actually like Garrett Hedlund when he's allowed to be played, like, kind of bigger... Fun characters. Yeah, he's playing a nothing character. Yeah, it's, so, yeah. he's underwritten. I'm not going to fight you on that. I'm, right. I'm not going to put it on him, the actor, because I'm no. sure he has more range than he's allowed. You know, to put you know who's here, having but... fun in this movie is Michael Sheen. Who does he play? He plays uh, like um, uh, he he plays a computer program who like. Oh, he's it's like, like a hedonism hedonism bot. He's like yeah. a hedonism bot. He like runs like a nightclub for computer yeah, programs, yeah, and Daft Punk Daft is actually Punk, yeah. working for him. Um, and he like there's a big like shootout in his uh, in in his nightclub, and he's like 
playing, you know, air guitar while people are fighting and killing each other. He's having a blast. Yeah. He's having a blast. Right. Brings a lot of life to it. All right, what's you got next? I, I, I like the film okay. Yeah. Um, That's fair. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't have any more sci-fi movies. Yeah, one or two. You know, I have a uh, one of the funniest comedies of the last decade. Mm. Oh, uh, I know what you're going to say. Was... I should have thought of that. <laughs> Oh, was shit. was roundly ignored yes. when it when it hit uh, theaters, and curiously, it hasn't yet been rediscovered. I feel like the right people have seen it. Mm. Uh, a lot of critics really adored it, mm. and anybody who has seen it tries to uh, tout its greatness. Uh-huh. But not enough people have seen it, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm talking about. The Lonely Island movie, Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. This is one of the which, funniest movies ever. It's I'm not even lying, man. I think this is one of the funniest movies it, ever. It is just a legit comedy classic. Uh, it's a, a spoof of musical biopics mm-hmm. about uh, this imaginary musician uh, played by Andy Samberg named Connor For Real. The number four. The number four, Connor yeah. For Real. Uh, if you buy the soundtrack to Popstar, it's a Connor For Real record. Yeah. Like they changed, um, he, he put out an album called um, Thriller Also. <laughs> I'm already laughing. God yeah. damn it. <laughs> and, and it tells this, it's like yeah. sort of this VH1 special about the rise and fall of this imaginary band and yeah, how yeah. Uh, the Andy Samberg character was... Such a brazen asshole! He just ripped the the band apart. Yeah, they were like in sync, and then he became like the Justin Timberlake. But then it turns out, a he's a doofus, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, b he buys into his own hype and completely loses touch with reality. And yeah, yeah. and he's actually not that talented a musician. No, and he uh, and- his new album is full of and and this is what I was talking about with Ishtar. By the way, he's a bad musician, but he's bad musician in a very fun way. Mm. His songs are actually very very catchy, but then you listen to the lyrics. There's a yeah. song he writes. The, the lyrics are like really absurd, and you're laughing yeah. at how funny those songs. Like are. he writes a song. Some of the songs he writes are like genuinely profane, and I'm not even going to bother like <laughs> telling you. But there's one he writes about. Uh, uh, the island of Ibiza, hmm. uh, which you're supposed to pronounce with a th instead hmm. of a z, uh, but he thinks that that's just the way everyone talks in Europe. So he every single t sound, every single th sound of the entire song a, suddenly yeah, has ca- this lisp, ca- Castilian Spanish, and yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, and so the entire song sounds absurd because he doesn't hmm. get it and didn't bother to do even the tiniest bit of research on how people actually talk. There's a really hilarious uh, song about how he, he's a really progressive guy and he, yeah. he welcomes his queer brothers and sisters and into the fold. Yeah. And, uh, it's a song. But, it's a song about uh, like why gay marriage should be legal. Hmm. Written several years after gay marriage was legalized. Yes. And uh, the problem is, as he sings it, he starts to, uh, like, some homophobia starts to creep in. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to be perceived. He he supports the queer community. Oh, but he doesn't want to be perceived as queer. That that would scare him. Gay panic, gay panic. So he starts dropping in these, like, little hints that, no, actually, but actually I'm straight. Yeah. Uh, And... Having and, sex with three beautiful women. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a bit. Where, I, I support my queer brothers, yeah. but I'm having sex with I, women. I'm not a hero. Don't call me a hero. <laughs> Constantly. And, and, and yeah, at the end, he's just saying, yeah, and, and riding horses and shooting guns. Not gay. Not gay. Like yeah. predator sports. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just gets like devolves into this, this horrific thing, and oh it's hilarious. Yeah. And 
every, every single gag lands. Like it's it is so just so great. impeccably scripted. Uh, the uh, the Lonely Island guys, like they've been writing songs together. They know mm. how to write this particular mm. type of novelty song. Yeah, they're funny. They're good yeah. novelty musicians. Yeah, and you've heard their stuff, even mm. if you're like you doesn't from like sound Saturday Night Live. Yeah, like they um, wrote they wrote Dick in a Box. They wrote Mother Lover. They wrote I'm on a the, boat. Yeah. What, what was the one where they're they're um, they're just gonna get like Mr. Pibb and watch the Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, it's um, the Chronic What Chronicles of yeah. Narnia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's like a it's like a song. It's like a rap song that's supposed to like in the vein of something that's supposed to make you sound really hardcore. But they're talking about buying cupcakes and going to see the Chronicles of Narnia mm. and answering movie trivia about the Notebook. Yes, <laughs> it's just delightfully uh, uh, charming. Um, and it's like witty, clever songwriting. Yeah, yeah. And the movie is every song in the movie is funny. Yeah, every yeah. song in the movie is funny. And also good. It's bad, but it's good bad. Mm. It's good in the same way, in the way that, like, I, this would obviously be a terrible song if it was real, but it's a joke song, so it's funny. Yeah. Um, wonderful celebrity cameos. There's a great bit with bees. Um, Seal has a cameo in the movie. <laughs> Seal gonna, and, the, and, and a bunch of wolves. And a bunch of wolves show up. It's not great. They actually have this moment in the preview, so I'm going to yeah. tell you the gag. But um, Seal is going to officiate their wedding, and they get Seal to appear in the movie, and he's playing himself. And uh, somebody wants to ruin the wedding, and they are. Oh no! It's the, they got wolves as like decorations for the wedding. No, I think like and, uh, I think like his like fiance is like your last name was Wolf or something like that. No, so he a, got he got wolves in like as part of like this is how a lav- lavish our wedding is. But they're they're the, the wolves. They're are, like feral wolves. Yeah, and and so and, they start attacking, and they they have to escape by helicopter, and, and they and lose Seal. seal. <laughs> and Seal's like, "You gotta get, you gotta get out of here. I hate wolves. Why do you hate wolves?" And he he points to his own cheeks and says, "How do you think I got these scars?" And Seal, by the way, doesn't usually joke about that. He's no, usually very no, tight-lipped no. about how he got those. Like, yeah, it's fucking nuts, this movie. Mm. It's unbelievably hilarious, and I'm actually embarrassed I didn't think of that. Because yeah, that might have been my number one. <laughs> I'm not even going to lie. That might have been my number one if I had thought of it. But I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. Got, you yeah, got to so it, and yeah, I didn't. got, uh, yeah, uh, Sarah Solomon, Tim Meadows, mm-hmm. Maya Rudolph, John Joan Cusack is in it. Yeah. Um, uh, she's not a... a, a a, a stirringly knock you over kind of actress, but I always love when Imogen Boots shows up. In She's a movie. good. I like her a lot. <laughs> she, yeah. she is just a, like a like a dazzling. Has that kind of movie star mm-hmm. quality, and, um, and and hundreds of other yeah. comedians besides. Uh, my next movie is also a musical. Mm-hmm. It is also a, uh, unlike Pop Star, which flopped but did have its fans. Yeah, this is a movie that flopped, destroyed careers. Uh, is was widely considered one of the worst movies of the 1980s. Okay. Uh, and it won the very first Razzie Award for Worst Picture. Really? And yet, I think Can't Stop the Music is delightful. <laughs> the, the Village People movie. The Village People movie. Nancy Walker. Uh, wonderful actor, Nancy Walker. Uh, she was on uh, Macmillan and Wife. She was in Rhoda. Uh... She directed a, it's also a kind of a biographical motion picture about the creation of the village people. These, it's, it's an imaginary origin it's, story. It's not it's, real. Yeah. It's not how they actually teamed up. It's it's an exaggerated version well, about the, how uh, Steve Gutenberg was this like amateur music producer who wanted to put together a super band and started assembling these guys he kept running into who happened to be wearing weird stuff. Like this guy keeps just wears this incredibly broad Native American uh, garb mm. and this guy always dresses as a 
the police officer, and yeah, how perfect. Just get them all the, uh, together. The joke of Can't Stop the Music is, what if the village people like actually were who they dressed as yeah. on stage? Yeah, which is a funny joke. Hmm. It's 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 intentionally campy. Like, it's a very, very silly film. Uh, right down to um, how like aggressively straight the village people are played. Like, everyone's like, oh, we're going to have sex with all of these women. Sure, you are village people. I know not all of them were gay, but, like, still, like, it's... You know, YMCA is a movie about men meeting other men. I mean, it's a song about it, but yeah. It's a song. The the musical numbers in this movie are incredibly broad and absurd. Mm. Uh, The characters are all completely over the top. There's these um, wonderful uh, talent agents who are basically, like, Peppermint Patty and Marcy... But like on coke, and like you just know that they're banging each other, and they're just really, really great. Um, It's it's got Caitlyn Jenner in it as like the the was right. Uh, That was uh, pre transition, yeah, yeah, pre transition as like the the competitor for uh, Steve Gutenberg's girlfriend's affections. Um, I don't understand. Why this movie doesn't have a cult following? I know it's unpopular. Well, it I get has... it was like weird, and they they spent too much money on it, and they had like a Baskin Robbins tie in that flopped, and it, it does have a cult audience, and it you know mm. it's, it's not sort a, of not a very big one. It it stopped kind of running the midnight circuit after a while, but yeah. it was showing up for a second there, um, just because the village people were can't be characters or can't be act. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the hate for Can't Stop the Music comes from uh, the hate for the village people. And, who hates and, the village people? Well, uh, people who hate disco hate the village people. And keep in mind what happened to disco and how mm-hmm. just vitriolic its rejection was at some point in the late 70s. I guess. Uh, the, I mean, the, whole, the whole disco is dead movement. I mean, the 1980 was like a rough film for like contemporary like disco themed musicals it was also the same year Xanadu came out a movie which is not on my list but does have an amazing soundtrack there, there's actually this really interesting I've talked about this before there's the really small window uh, something was going on in Hollywood something mm. was in the water where uh, producers decided to green light some of the, the strangest rock musicals you'll ever see because mm. from like 79 to 81 we got uh, not only Can't Stop the Music and Xanadu we also had Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts called Band I think that, uh, I think that might have been slightly before 1979 but it was in that era it was in that same era yeah. and we, we also had uh, a, this sort of cult oddity in Forbidden Zone uh, and of course we had Menachem Golan's The Apple yes I was about this, to say this, yeah. this, and, and, uh, and Shock Treatment also sort of slipped mm-hmm. in there so we had a lot of really yeah. strange. Sergeant Pepper was seventy eight. Yeah, seventy eight. Close so, enough. It's in the water. You're right. Close enough for jazz. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so something really strange was going on, where all of these like really rotten musicals were all mm. greenlit all around the world at the same time because uh, yeah. the Apple was a German production. Yeah. Uh, and here's the thing: I like all those movies. <laughs> I like some uh, of them uh, more than others, but I do like all of those movies. Xanadu is not good. Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of ambitious shit in Xanadu, but uh, it is not good. It has it has a rockin' yellow soundtrack. Mm. Electric Orchestra does a great soundtrack movie, and it has uh, like the first Don Bluth independent animation with like a really lovely. Yeah, the, Do- the Don Bluth sequence is great. Yeah, there's stuff in um, there that I like, the, the, but it's not a good movie. You're right. The, the the dancing number where it's sort of like mm. the old timey music and the '80s music. Yeah, that's kind of together. That's kind of a good one. Yeah, uh, you got Gene Kelly. Coming back to do yeah. some of his old Gene Kelly stuff, and yeah. then Olivia Newton John had to dance next to him and looked like shit because she's right next to, <laughs> yeah. to Gene fucking Kelly. Yeah. The movie uh, is beneath Gene Kelly, but at the very least, the movie doesn't make Gene yeah. Kelly look bad. Yeah. 
Yeah. Can't Stop the Music is just a frothy puffball of a movie. But I like that. Um, and I think people don't give it enough credit for that. People hmm. just dismiss this movie or don't even know it exists anymore. No. And it was a punchline for a while. Again, it won the first Razzie. And, and it people beat like, Xanadu, for God's sake. People kind of like some of the Village People's hits now. They like mm-hmm. YMCA. Sure. They like In the Navy. Uh, um, but <laughs> You just ran many, out, didn't you? You're well, like, oh, I guess that's it. There's a couple others, but yeah. um, how many people own like multiple Village People records? They're they're yeah. considered like a bit of a, a yeah. something out of the past. They're now. they're a greatest hits album of a, of a band. Yeah, yeah. No, and I'm not even going to fight you on that. But um, regardless, I think this movie is just gloriously camp, mm. uh, genuinely entertaining to watch. It's got a wonderful energy to it. Uh, it is blithely ignoring reality mm. uh, in an attempt to create. This sort of fantasy backstory for a band that isn't even real. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know what? It's enormously entertaining. And I think it just... Uh, I, I'm giving a little bonus points because everyone says it's so horrible. But I like this movie a lot. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to choose a movie that also has a bunch of music in it. In fact, this movie's got everything in it. Okay. Uh, and I know this is another movie you hate. So, oh, uh, no. So you'll forgive me for this. It's also a very recent movie. It actually just came out last year. Um and uh, not only does it have music, it has sex, and it has vomit, and it has pee, and it has f- filmmaking orgies, and it has cocaine oh. gremlins, and it has Never, journeys yeah. in the Yeah, no, I, I do hate and this And it ties, movie, ties cinema all together in this great uh, uh, sequence at the end where yeah. cinema is just die on cellulose. Yeah. Great uh, comes in air quotes, by the way. I, I, the more I think about this movie, the more I think it is like a genuine classic. And I'm talking about Damien Chazelle's Babylon. All right. Um, it's uh, a this sort of fantastical version of Hollywood history. It, it's not accurate to actual history at all. No, it takes it's some, inspired by some real it's, things. It's about as though. real, it's about as accurate as Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a movie it is intensely aware of. Intensely aware of and actually shows footage from. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it's actually... The characters from Babylon, uh, one of the characters actually watches footage from Singing in the Rain, like mm-hmm. in, a, in an epilogue sequence. And actually, the song and, uh, Singing in the Rain wasn't from the movie Singing mm-hmm. in the Rain. It actually originally, or at least it had a very early appearance, if this wasn't its original mm-hmm. origin, in a movie called The Hollywood Review mm-hmm. of 1928, 1929. 20, and I think, it yeah. had like everyone in this one studio, like all the major stars, were wearing like yellow rain slickers and you know, they had a rain machine on them and they were singing. Singing in the Rain. There's like Buster Keaton singing, mm. singing in the Rain. And I think Brad Pitt's character in Babylon is in that sequence. Yeah. Doing yeah. that bit, you know, sort of setting up mm. that Singing in the Rain would exist later yeah. on. Yeah. And um, the character watches Singing in the Rain. It's like, well, shit, we went through that. But ours was like a piss and shit orgy. It wasn't this <laughs> delightful Gene Kelly musical. Right. Um, yeah, th- this movie starts with an elephant pooping on a guy. It cuts to a shot of a guy getting peed on. You know where we are. Yeah. Uh, that opening party sequence is wild. Uh, and Margot Robbie plays a character who's trying to uh, break into the Hollywood system. She wants to be the next big ingenue. Meanwhile, on the way down is the Brad Pitt character. He was uh, a star of the silent era, but now he's like kind of aging out of sort of the More roles he wants. Sort of shades of a star is born here, and, except and those then, two characters never hook yeah, up. And, and then there's a, a third character who's kind of the narrator. He's, he's sort of like Dickensian, and he's kind of observing all this wildness and doesn't have a yeah. lot of effect on he it. He wants to work um, in the industry and gradually works his way up to become an executive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, making big decisions at a studio. And yeah. compromises are made, and he and, loses and his soul. There, there are a few just 
staggeringly forthrightly cinematic sequences in this mm-hmm. movie, like uh, that that opening party sequence, with just the, its sense of timing, its sense of editing, the over design of it, the, the the excess of it is really just glorious to behold. Break and it takes a long time. It's a big sequence. It's a very long movie. Um, yeah, it's a, over three hours in length, and. Um, then there's a sequence where, and they kind of do this fantastical uh, version of how movies are shot. And there's this mm. vast, it's, uh, it's a desert, de- desert yeah. landscape where all of the movie sets are constructed next to each other and yeah. all of the movies are being shot simultaneously. Which, because it's silent, it, you could do. It doesn't yeah. really matter if everyone's yelling something else anywhere else. And, yeah, and there's this wonderful yeah. sequence where um, Margot Robbie, the, this character, proves that she can... Uh, act very well. She, she can, can cry, cry on cue, cry on cue. and produce the correct number of tears that you want from from which whichever eyes you, you yeah. might want. So the, the sort of glorious celebration of the clunky artificiality, everything in this clunkily artificial movie, I the, think it's very fitting. The greatest visual effect in that entire sequence is it's actually a movie where. Um, uh, Margot Robbie and Samara Weaving are in the same scene at the same time. Oh, and yeah. Because to me, that's right. They look cu- very and, similar. And you cut back beings. and forth really quickly and you, you <laughs> start like, to blend together. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's a shot of it's Samara Weaving, Margot Robbie, and Jamie Presley all standing next to each other mm-hmm. and they look identical. They, have, like, they have similar features. Yeah. They have similar features. There you go. Um, uh, very, very different talents as sure. actresses. Sure, no, and but, I like them all. They're really yeah. talented people. They're they're, they're great. It's just uh, they, they look a little alike. No, nobody talks about yeah. the TV series My Name Is Earl enough because uh, didn't she win an Emmy for that? I think she won multiple Emmys. Yeah, for that. She was she's great in that show. Great in that show. Yeah, she's funny. Um, Jamie uh, yeah, yeah, there's there's that sequence. There's the really wonderful sequence where they're shooting a talkie for the first time and they can't get the sound right mm-hmm. and they can't get the sound right so much someone dies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that's a really fun sequence. And then, of course, there's the Journey into Hell sequence mm. where uh, Tobey Maguire playing this cocaine goblin <laughs> takes a, a, the characters like down through these like descending levels underneath the ground. Like this underground, where, uh, like bizarre nightclub experience where there's increasing levels of criminality and yeah, hedonism like, and like, there's like crocodiles chained up to the wall. Yeah, and, and, and this, yeah, yeah. There's, there's like the orgy room and then the, the sport fucking room where you bet on people fucking. And I'm not exactly sure how that works, but it's like, yeah. I'd be confusing this with money playing. <laughs> you want to bet on a dude fucking an alligator, <laughs> Babylon. I bet uh, he has a good time. And and I, and, I and, and I know a lot of people sort of rolled their eyes at it. it's like oh this Babylon is kind of uh, touting its own importance in the the yeah. firmament of, of Hollywood by showing this sequence at the end how there's there's sort of this fundamental connection to all of cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like this sequence. I, I think it's like mm-hmm. uh, Precious Images, that uh, Academy Award winning short that. Um, Oh, who was the name of the filmmaker who did Precious Images? I don't let me, know. Let me look that up. But uh, I'll, I'll look it up. You keep talking. Yeah, but yeah, you Precious keep Images this movie was like so much. Uh, Precious Images was this wonderful short film that was essentially an editing exercise. It went through cinema history and just edited a bunch of clips together. Chuck over Workman. Chuck Workman. That was it. Four hundred and seventy um, half-second-long splices of movie moments through the history of American films, mm-hmm. accompanied by Singing in the Rain. Yeah, and. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this was probably da- conscious Damien, of, Damien uh, Chazelle thing. sort of working that yeah. into this kind of uh, c- cinema is just this wild party where people mm-hmm. have died. Uh, it encouraged a lot of depravity. And what do we get out of it? Mm-hmm. Movie magic question mark or just a bunch of shit on a screen. Yeah. Um, I like kind of how ambivalent it is at the very end of all of that. The movie magic and was it wor- it it does provide all these beautiful artistic moments, but it, behind it all, it's just this kind of petty people trying to you know claw their way through this this moneyed mm-hmm. system uh 
I liked it at the time. I know it was got really, really bad reviews. It was hugely oh, expensive. Oh, there are people who really like this movie. They're yeah, like definite I, huge fans of this film. Yeah, I, I was yeah. I was tempted to start talking about it at the time as one of the best films of the year, but I didn't quite have the temerity yet. Maybe I would have it now. Because yeah. the more I think about Babylon, the more I respect what it was trying to do. This sort of bizarre gonzo Hollywood epic yeah. that just has everything in it. I respect what it was trying to do. I just don't think it did it terribly well. Uh, I th- there's, it's it's so huge and it's got so many great performers and like uh, very melodramatically constructed moments uh, that, you know, I'm not saying it's a complete wash or anything mm-hmm. like that. In fact, there's actually one sequence in the middle that I'm deeply in love with where Margot Robbie, her career is starting to hit the skids and she's starting to like demand more and more attention. And then finally she's at one of these big Hollywood parties and says, Hey, who wants to see my dad fight a snake? And they drive <laughs> out into the desert. They find a poisonous snake wow. and they try to get like her dad played by Eric Roberts to fight it. And he gets bitten by the snake and it's really bad. She gets bitten and, and by the snake. And then she gets bitten by it on the neck. Mm. And she's flinging around with it like a Looney Tune mm. as it's like pumping more and more yeah, like horror venom into her neck until someone has to like suck out the poison well, and it's hilarious and, and this this uh, woman steps forward to suck out the poison and like they kind of fall in love it's for, a like, queer awakening it, moment yeah, this, like yeah. queer awakening moment out in the yeah. middle of the desert after being yeah. savaged by a snake that's a moment where i don't think i think T- we tell all me, knew, tell me you don't adore, adore this movie i enjoy that part of the movie right. And I think that's a moment in the movie where if you didn't know Margot Robbie was a comic genius, mm. you did after that moment. You didn't need to wait to Barbie to yeah. find out she's a comic genius. You probably didn't need to anyway because she's done wonderful work. But regardless, that scene is genuinely funny. And that scene kind of proves to me that pretty much every moment in Babylon could work. I actually think that it's... You know, I've, I've praised some movies in this list already that are overstuffed, but I think yeah. they're overstuffed in a way that really works. For me, so much of Babylon is overstuffed that these big dramatic moments, the ones that should hit me emotionally, like you know, where Brad Pitt's character ends up, for example, um, end up falling really, really flat because it just yeah. feels like we're going through the main bullet points in, in a very perfunctory way. When... Anyone asks me now, can you name a movie that would have been better as a TV series? My first thought is Babylon. Okay. I think if Babylon had been 10 episodes, if it had 10 hours to tell that story, and had all the same highlights, had all the same scenes, but we would have had all the connecting tissue and actually built the characters and the world up a little bit more, and it felt like certain characters were more than just a one-scene wonder and actually had... Not Tobey Maguire, he's perfect, but like... You know, there's certain characters in this movie who don't have enough to do, and it feels like Damon Giselle knew they were important to include, but didn't know how to actually include them half the time. Um, I think that would have helped. I think it would have made the scenes in the movie that are very extreme feel less like a look ma, watch me die, look at how extreme I can be. I swear to God, I'm not just the La La Land guy. Um, I think it would make them more palatable because they would feel like they're actually part of like a real narrative rather than something that is just attempting to be in your face and brazen and try to like show almost in a Moulin Rouge way mm-hmm. just how exciting the silent era was yeah. for Hollywood. It wasn't like this like stodgy, fuddy-duddy time. It was actually, we keep using this word in this podcast, but maybe that's appropriate for movies that were went way over budget and didn't make the money back. But it's a very hedonistic time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he got away from him. I think he tried to do so much in this movie that what he was able to accomplish fell really flat for me. 
for the most part. There are comedic mm-hmm. moments in this movie that I think are great. Okay. Gene Smart has a great speech in this movie, but I also feel like it isn't earned in this movie. If it was mm-hmm. a longer story and we spent more time with her character and Brad Pitt's character, it would land harder. But in a vacuum, that speech is great. I just don't think it all falls together very well. Yeah, and ultimately, yeah. I find bits of it a little interminable, and I don't think it earns that ending. I actually think there's another Brad Pitt movie that has kind of the same ending that ultimately works a lot better and weirdly enough it's interview with a vampire where the vampire realizes i can never see the sun again but all of a sudden there are movies Mm -hmm. and it's a history of like sunrises in movies and it allows him to experience parts of the world he never could which is really what movies really are i I suppose so but that movie felt like like, earned you know there's also a sequence like that in cinema paradiso where it's all like kisses uh, yeah but also i don't like that movie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's it's, a movie that is schmaltzy to it's, a fault it's 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 schmaltzy it will make you cry no and, it didn't and uh, oh <laughs> look it's about a, it's about an old projectionist that works as a projectionist it kind of got got me oh it is bit, sentimental yeah. and I totally yeah. get it if it makes you cry it just mm. it, for me it, it felt really artificial in the way it was going about okay. it there's some wonderful um, sequences in it again just like Babylon but I didn't yeah, it didn't make um, me it didn't blow me away. Here's the thing. I think uh, Babylon kind of nailed... There, there's, a, there's a skill to doing excess. You can mm-hmm. just put a lot on the screen mm-hmm. and just have it be a bunch of noise. Yeah. It's like when uh, we talk about like um, like stupid comedies need to be made by smart people. Yeah. I think it, films about excess need yeah. to be made by people who chaotic, understand yeah. how to be reserved. Yeah. Chaotic you know? uh, movies need to know about... Need to be made by people who understand how to wield chaos. There needs to be some control to the chaos. Exactly. Look at something like John Waters movies. Those movies always devolve into like an orgy by the end. And, uh, but he knows what he's doing. There's a direction to that. Yeah. Um, I look at something like Moulin Rouge and I feel like that's just, that's just a bunch of glitter being blasted in my face. It's being uh, very clumsily handled. I feel like, comparatively Babylon mm-hmm. is actually a little bit more controlled he knows what sequences he wants to put this in and I, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate what he did uh, Damien Chazelle whose movie I lo- really liked Whiplash Whiplash is great I hated La La Land I don't hate La La Land but I think okay. it got way overblown I, I hate La La Land I think, I it's, think it's a hypocritical film yeah, that, and that's, that's something that pisses sure. me off the most about it and I feel like he came back he's like you know what this is my chance I'm just gonna do it all well you see First like Man First it. Man is good I, I didn't see First Man. First Man's quite good. All right. It's it's weirdly, like, stolid. Hmm. Like, it's... Because Neil Armstrong is portrayed as very emotionally reserved, the whole movie is, and hmm. I think that undermined it a little bit. I think they overshot their, their yeah. shot a little bit, but it's it's a really good movie. Yeah, I, I really dug Babylon. I, I feel like that it's going to have appreciators, more and more appreciators as time passes. Again, I, there are definitely people who love that movie, and I'm definitely not one of them. <laughs> um... YA movies. YA movies were kind of a big deal for a while, thanks to the enormous success of films like Harry, Harry Potter, Potter and yeah. Twilight, uh, and uh, you know some some lesser hits, but still managed to make a lot of money. Like the first Divergent was a big deal. Um, a lot of them tanked. A lot of them, they were like, "Oh, this is a hit book series. We'll make it into a movie." And then this people didn't really come, weren't super interested, uh, and frankly, for the most part, uh, no big loss. Most of the failed YA movies I've seen were okay at best, or if not, just a lot you know. of them had. They they catered to a certain kind of adolescent fantasy yeah. that wasn't necessarily healthy to indulge in. Well, I don't know about that. I think you know you, you've talked a lot about how a lot of them are about sort of the militarization of youth, and yeah. you will you will fit into a mold, and you will fight the evil government oppressors. So and I don't know. It? I think maybe teaching a whole generation of kids. Uh, in the early 2000s to grow up to fight evil government oppressors. 
you know, there's some there's something to say for that. <laughs> There's some there's some rough people in government. I'm just saying. I think you know, trying to like, hey, you should be politically active. Yeah, well, actually, I, I yeah. Feel, that'd be but great. I feel like a lot of them are about how uh, working for the system is is their. Catholic. I'm not saying there isn't hypocrisy mm-hmm. involved. Um, anyway, some were okay. A lot of them were bad. Some were kind of interesting, but not very good. Uh, but there's one that failed to start a franchise. It was based on a hit book series uh, that I actually think is lovely. And I think it's genuinely romantic, and it's got like kind of lots of fun, weird camp moments, and the cast is unusually great, and nobody cared about beautiful creatures. Uh, uh yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't care too much about beautiful creatures either. I remember you liking this movie. I liked it okay. Okay. I, I, li- I liked the weird elements to it. Yeah, it's got some weird stuff. It's in about it. casters. It's about it's about witches. witches. They're, they're witches, basically. Well, call, calling a witch is like calling a jock a jock. We prefer the term caster. Yes, I know that's in the movie, but for the sake of telling the audience what's what, I uh, yeah. I, I liked the bit where um, they go to visit the caster mansion and all the where all yeah. the witches and warlocks are hanging out, and yeah. Julie or uh, Jeremy Irons is there. Yeah. And he's putting on this bizarre voice. I, I'm going to tickle the eyes if you don't mind. And he plays and the like, piano. And then, um, then Ann Dowd shows up. I think it's Ann Dowd, right? Uh, um, n- uh, no, it's Marco Martindale. The other uh, Ann Dowd. The other Ann Dowd, damn it. <laughs> Did it again. It's the Dylan McDermott and Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> I apologize the, the to both of those century. women because they're both excellent actors. They're brilliant actors, uh, yeah. But she shows up and she's like in this like witch makeup and has like a live hen under her no, it's arm. It's a peacock. It's a peacock. It's actually carrying a peacock. It's really just wonderful. Um, <clears throat> the story is about a, a relatively normal, bright but normal kid played by Alden Ehrenreich who falls in love with this girl at school and she's you know, an outcast and it turns out her entire family has been accused of witchcraft. Uh, and she's played by uh, Alice Englert and she's wonderful. Um, and uh, yeah, it turns out that when you like have like magic in your bloodline or whatever, there comes a point in your life where you have to decide, are you going to be, in the words of Wizard of Oz, a good witch or a bad witch? And that moment is coming and she's really, really worried that she's going to turn out to be, you know, evil and do terrible things. And she thinks that, you know, she's cursed because of who she came from. Uh, And so much of the movie is not about that, which is so nice. Because a lot of the movie is about Alice Englert and Alden Ehrenreich talking. Actually having conversations about things. Talking about books that they've read. Having, dare I say, real romantic chemistry. I actually believe that those characters would fall for each other in exactly that way. And in the world of Y18 romance... That's rare. (laughs) I don't know if that exists outside of this movie. I'm not even kidding. So much of it is like, I buy it for the plot. Is okay, I'll, I'll take, but I don't necessarily think it's... I'll take your word for it that these two characters are in love. They, they, they... Shut up. Anyway, this is a, this is a one... No, no, that, oh, I think I meant in this movie. Okay. No, 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 no. Just a, a lot of times, In most yes. cases, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, no like I, I, I'm not convinced that Shailene Woodley loves anyone in the Divergent movies. No. Like, at, I, no. no, not even for one second do I think. There's no chemistry or whatever. Because they're not allowed to have chemistry. Or they're Je- too busy talking about plot. Or Jennifer Lawrence uh, has has a crush on, uh, who plays, Josh Hutcherson is his name? No, she doesn't have a crush on Josh Hutcherson. That's the problem. She has a crush on Liam Hemsworth. Oh, that's right, and, yeah. But she But Josh Hutcherson is, has a crush on her, and she has to manipulate that in the public because he and, said uh, so live, and so she has to pretend I'm, to be in love with him in order to get, it's so 
Damn confusing. And I'm really just waiting for Jennifer Lawrence and Jenna Malone to have a relationship. Oh my god, Jenna <laughs> Malone she's is... She's like the most interesting she's character. She's like a saving grace... Her and Woody Harrelson uh-huh. are the... And then Elizabeth Banks, actually. It's saving graces of that movie. Um, all those movies. Um... Anyway, I love these characters. I love Alice Englert's like weird ass family. Emmy Rossum plays like the black sheep of the family who chose evil and is now like just runs into Alice Englert's boyfriend, runs into Alden Ehrenreich and says, "You're my new fuckboy," and just hypnotizes him and brings her as his date, and it's super awkward. Emma Thompson plays like. Uh, the woman in town who's like Bible thumper who's possessed by an evil witch. And, yeah. yeah. And so like, she's like trying to like br- bring up all of this old racism and it's all going to come to head at a reenactment of a civil war, uh, 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 battle with as if it wasn't on the nose enough. Um, but what makes the movie work really is the cast is dynamite. Every mm. single person in the cast is doing great work and it's centered around a love story between two actors who are not only good together, and good actors, but who actually have the material necessary to build an actual, meaningful, believable relationship. Uh, This was written, adapted, uh, and uh, directed by Richard Lagraveness, who is actually, like, a really good, sensitive filmmaker. Uh, He directed that movie, uh, he wrote and directed Living Out Loud, Uh, he wrote The Fisher King, uh, he wrote A Little Princess. He wrote The Bridges of Madison County. He wrote The Mirror Has Two Faces. So it's a pretty good movie. Yeah, he did a really good musical the last five years. He's a really, really good writer, and I think he was a good choice for this material because he understood that in order for anyone to give a shit about this YA crap, all of this, all of these like made-up words that we had just so we could brand them, all of this like building of plot points so that we can build on them in future sequels, none of it's going to matter if the characters don't matter. Mm. And the characters do. And so it's one of the few films in that YA era that I not only like, but genuinely love. And I think it's oh, really wow, good. okay. It's adorable. Um, uh, I... This movie falls prey to something that was all too common with these YA fiction What's that? movies. Uh, it relied way too heavily on mythology. They explain yeah. and then re-explain and then re-explain exactly how this world is supposed to work and the terminology. We're talking about Dune and how bleak it is and how strange and you know sort of mm. heady and exciting it is. These movies don't approach their mythology with that same sort of fervor they want to make sure everybody's on the same page at all times mm-hmm. which means they walk you through all of this mythology and all of these things and after a while it just becomes confusing drivel mm-hmm. it's just a bunch of people babbling uh so i i couldn't I get like all the babylon. way thank you yes yeah you, you know what beautiful creatures needed a cocaine goblin <laughs> Well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm looking to fight a, you on that. A literal look, cocaine goblin. I'm it's, not even going to fight you like on that. It's like Cheddar Goblin from Mandy. It just pukes <laughs> cocaine on you. What a treat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cocaine goblin. I have a Cheddar Goblin t-shirt, by the way. I love that mm. movie. All right, what, what do you got next? We got two left. Uh, my, I guess my second to last. Um, my second to last is a tie. Okay. Because... Uh, the filmmaker who made them made like three mega bombs in a row. Mm. And this was unusual because this filmmaker is actually better known for making very uh, high grossing movies. Uh, in fact, he's often been called like the king of the blockbusters. He invented the blockbusters oh, in the okay, 70s, sure. Jaws. Yeah. 
Yeah. His name is Steven Spielberg. I've heard of him. Um, uh, he, he, um, they made this movie called The Fablemans. It's kind of that story. Yeah. No, uh, he did three bombs in a row. Um, he did, or not in a row, but he did three bombs sort of in, in recent, in rapid succession. He did a film called The BFG, yep. just in the novel by Roald Dahl. Big special effects bonanza, based on a beloved children's book. Mm-hmm. Nobody saw it. Bummer, it's a good movie. I like that movie. He did an adaptation of West Side Story, mm-hmm. uh, a, a second film version. The first one was made in 1961. One Best Picture. One Best deal. Picture. Uh, and then he did sort of a restaging of it, brought some creativity to it, mm-hmm. redid the, the dancing, reordered the songs in a way that made more sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also did The Fablemans. I don't like The Fablemans. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's uh, kind of unfocused. But I love the BFG. And I love West Side Story. Okay, so you're putting those, those two together. So those 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 two in particular. Um, mm-hmm. Odd because uh, he's made some of the highest grossing films of all time. Uh, yep. The Indiana Jones movies and Jurassic Park. He also did he's 1941. He's not a guarantee. But you know. uh, that's a big ambitious film. Like, True. It's a big, you know, big cast and a lot of filmmaking mm-hmm. techniques are going into that one. A lot of filmmaking techniques. How sophisticated. I'm a film Ooh, critic. Technique. This is a film with techniques. Uh, I, I'm actually, I was just looking it up because I was just like, did Ready Player One bomb? No, it made a staggering amount of money. Yeah, actually. Ready Player it's, One was a huge hit. Yeah, it's it's one of the worst that. movies of the decade. It's one of the worst movies Spielberg's ever made. It's yeah, so bad. Uh, oh, God. Probably, maybe so it's the worst. No, something evil is pretty crap. All right, never mind. Anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, he was steadily reliable for a while. And then uh, at some point in his career, I would say around the time he made AI, he started to change gears a little bit. He wanted uh-huh. to make films in his own milieu. Um, I, I read an interview with him from 1981, right after he made Raiders of the Lost Ark, how his films were getting too big for him. He didn't want to do big films anymore. He wanted to make yeah. smaller, intimate movies. His next movie was E.T. It's one of the <laughs> biggest movies of all time. Uh, yeah. and, and, I on a more intimate scale, though. It's about kids in a house for most of it. I suppose so. Yeah. It wasn't until... Like, he made The Color Purple. That was yeah. a little bit more of a... Uh, an awards darling. Yeah. Empire um, of the Sun is great. Yeah. Empire of the Sun. But again, that was a gigantic yeah. production. It was. It was big. It was big. I'm just saying it was good. Um, but anyway. But, but in the 2000s, he's like, I'm going to do things I'm interested in now. Yeah. And he, his career after that became a lot more varied. Yeah. Uh, when he started to make the like the science fiction blockbusters again, they weren't that interesting anymore. Mm-hmm. He was doing stuff like War of the Worlds and Ready Player One. Or, well, uh, I'll, where he's kind I'll of, cut it back for Minority Report. Minority Report is great. And, and I actually uh, think War of the Worlds is impressively dour. For Spielberg, I think it's one of the things that makes it so like interesting a for him. Bit it's more like of a cynical movie. What if it's not fun? Yeah. <laughs> like, what if it's just horrifying? But that's when he started to make films like Munich and Catch Me If You Can. These things yeah. that are a little bit more oblique and interesting. Yeah. Um, I I've, I would love to see Criterion put out a box set of Munich, Lincoln, and The Post, just yeah. all in one box, because be... I think those three movies are of a piece. That's a great trilogy. Yeah. Um, but when he went back to make something like the BFG, I'm not sure if you've read Roald Dahl's The BFG. I have. It's okay. Great. Uh, this unusual story about a giant who appears in the streets of London, and the giant's job is to sneak around in the dark. It's a giant, but it can yeah. sneak around. Uh, poke this gigantic horn-like device into the windows of buildings and blow dreams into people's heads. It's kind yeah. of this this fairy tale creature. 
A little girl named Sophie sees the giant, never not supposed to be seen, snatches the little girl out of the orphanage where she lives, and takes her off to giant land where he explains his life. And he eats these disgusting vegetables and is bullied by the other giants. And the other giants um, are bullies because they actually eat children. They eat children. They run mm. off to uh, distant cities all around the world at mm. night because they can run very fast. And yeah. they eat children. The BFG actually stands for the Big Friendly Giant. Big Friendly Giant. giant. And, yeah. um, uh, Which is ironic, he's actually a little giant. The other uh, giants are quite a bit bigger than him. But he's much bigger than Sophie. He, I understand. So Sophie can like hide in his I'm just ear. saying he's big and giant is, is a bit redundant. Uh, the giant is, I think, feel like uh, Spielberg really nailed the way the giant was depicted in the book. Mm-hmm. As this well, really like un- unusual, yeah. uh, this unusual creature that has this very strange manner of speaking. Um, he adds a little bit of his own dazzle. Like the mm-hmm. in the book, when the, the giant catches dreams, he just sort of waves a net through the air and puts him in a jar and you can't see it. Yeah. And you know, in a book, that's interesting, but he wants to make it more visually interesting. You, you, you actually look at something, yeah. Um, but then it, it... And it becomes a, an effort to stop the giants from eating children. But then uh, Spielberg decides to end it in this really unusual comedic kind of a way. And he's... Uh, it's the, it, it's, the queen it farts cl- magic. It climaxes in a scene where the queen of England farts magic. And her cor- corgis fart. And they skitter across the floor of Buckingham Palace because they're farting so hard. Yeah. It's the climax of the movie. It's like it's like the fizzy uh, lifting drinks from Willy Wonka. But farts. Yeah. I actually got to interview... Which is from the book, by the way. He calls it, it whiz-popping. But yeah. I, I, I got to interview Steven Spielberg. Oh. Very, very briefly. It was like in a group setting. I only got like one or two oh, questions. Shoot. But I was just like... "Is I think my only question was, is this your first fart joke? <laughs> and he was like, I think it might be. <laughs> he was very excited. excited about that. He was yeah. very excited about it, actually. Uh, it's, it's visually dazzling. It's yeah. very magical. Uh, it has all of those qualities you like about Spielberg movies, but it's a little odd. And that's what I like yeah. about the BFG. It feels a little bit uh, a little bit daring for someone like Spielberg. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a very sweet movie. You and I both liked this movie a lot yeah, when it and came out. and it's, it's It was expensive and no one went to see it. it it's um, a little... It's weirdly slight, I think, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. I think a lot of people, when they see a Spielberg movie, they expect... Emotional heft. Yeah. They think of the ending of E.T. and how you mm-hmm. sobbed your eyes out when yeah. E.T. went home, that kind of thing. And I think the BFG, its emotional moments are more uh, subtle mm. and thoughtful. And I think that's great, but I can appreciate why maybe it wasn't a huge crowd pleaser. But yeah. I think it's a really sweet movie, and it really bums me out that it doesn't have a bigger yeah. audience. I and, like that movie a lot. And, and of course, I don't think I need to say much about West Side Story. Which uh, is uh, Spielberg restaging this Jerome Kern musical, mm-hmm. and it really felt redundant and when he was like, "Oh, he's just gonna he's just gonna do that again." And, yeah. and I was I was actually really apprehensive. I was like, "Oh, he's just repeating stuff." Yeah, is this gonna be one of, like a Ready Player One where he's just rehashing old material? He actually yeah. had a fresh take on the material. He did. He did a great um, take on the material. I think uh, it's he, he beautifully opened, photographed. He opened this. It's it's a movie about a gang war, but uh, Spielberg restages it uh, in a city that's being. Uh, gentrified and remodeled yeah so it's like kind of in this crumbling world so he adds this kind of whole tragic element mm-hmm. to the entire thing yeah he plays up mm. the plays uh, uh queer elements which mm. i think really adds a lot more texture to yeah, it the, there's he a, actually a casts in the, the people who aren't movie. white <laughs> as, as more of the characters who aren't white some mm. of them weren't originally some of them were um uh, he, he removes some of like the the problematic language from the original musical yeah. which he no big no big loss he gave tony mm. a more interesting backstory which i think really really helped mm. the only thing keeping this movie from greatness for me is, is, is tony, is tony. Himself, it's ansel yeah. elgord ansel elgord and there's there's been controversy with ansel elgord i'm not even talking about that I don't even I just remember think, what the controversy was. There was some like some creepy regard. stuff he did with. I, I honestly don't know. Right. Um, 
I think he's just not a good actor in this movie. At the very no, least, he's not up to everyone else's standard. Mike Faced plays Riff in he's this movie, amazing. and he's great in the he movie. He should have been Oscar nominated, and, man. And, he's uh, great in it. You and I were watching the movie live and saying, "Why isn't he Tony?" Like, yeah, like in the theater. Like uh, Ansel Elgort, he's just he he doesn't. The whole point of Tony is that he's so likable, lovable, sexy, whatever quality you want to evoke with him. Mm. That Maria might throw away her entire life and get other people killed for it, and it feels justified. And you need that for Maria as well. But for Maria, they cast Rachel Zegler, and she nailed it. Hmm. She's great. Ansel Elgort is not bringing that. He's not bringing smolder. He's not bringing danger. He's not bringing pathos. He's just there. Ansel Elgort is the kind of actor who has for many years been coasting on his looks because he's mm-hmm. he's a handsome bloke and uh like he was okay in I the fault in our stars but he's not amazing in it yeah. you know like again i just feel like that is but I, i'm not gonna just... fault the whole movie no. and the amazing choreography and the wonderful music mm-hmm. and steven spielberg's rather ingenious restaging of certain elements mm-hmm. uh should ansel re- elgort and dane dehan have switched roles mm. an ansel elgort type could have played Valerian, but okay. I wouldn't want to have seen him in that I movie. I think Dane DeHaan actually might have been an okay Tony, because he would have had that, like, James Dean yeah, kind of, yeah. like, it's, it's a take. It's I, only I, one, there's lots of different ways to play Tony. I don't think he could sing is the problem. Probably yeah. not. Fuck, dub him. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't care. Actually, I would have liked to see kind of, like, this dark, broody version of Tony. That could work, right? Because they gave him this, like, tragic backstory where, like, he was in a fight and he got someone mm. killed and he's trying to, like, make something of himself and, like, like, like be a better person. There's like a, and... But there's an element of danger to yeah. him still. It's that they and... added this element of danger and Ansel Holcourt doesn't play that at all. Yeah. It's a great script. I actually think the adaptation of it is brilliant. Mm. I think the staging of it is brilliant. I mean, Janusz Kaminski has a look, but he, it's surprisingly malleable in the right with when Spielberg has the right ma- uh, material. And West Side Story looks fucking astounding. Mm. I like the movie a lot. I didn't make my list. I thought about it, but ultimately, I just thought the main casting brought the movie down just enough to not do it. But it's a good movie. Uh, right. It's a good movie. Um, speaking of Steven Spielberg, uh, who was accused for many years, and I think unfairly, of being like a filmmaker who refused to grow up. You know, he kept making these like you know genre kid entertainments, kid friendly movies. Yeah. Kid-friendly movies. And I'm like, I'm sorry, the dude made it, the color purple. The dude made the Empire of the Sun. Were you not fucking paying attention? It was all in there. But it was yeah. all. He was always. He was always be- better known for his yeah blockbuster genre films. And audiences were more interested in his uh, genre films, so he kept making them. And finally, with Schindler's List, he was able to break out of that, and good for him. But regardless. You know, one of his more popular movies with a certain generation is a film called Hook. Mm. A film which did make money, so I'm not picking it. And a film that I don't like very much. Hook is not good. There's stuff I like in it, but I think it is, first off, terminally 1990s. But that's not really a problem in and of itself. The problem is that I just think it fundamentally misunderstands Peter Pan on a lot of different levels. A movie that does understand Peter Pan on a lot of different levels and Mm. is probably the very best adaptation we've ever had of Peter Pan is P.J. Hogan's Peter Pan from 2003. Not not Pan? No, not Pan. The Joe Wright movie? No, not the Joe Wright movie. P.J. Hogan's Peter Pan. I rewatched Joe Wright's movie, uh, Pan, and and I liked it better the second time. Okay. But, uh, anyway... P.J. Hogan's Peter Pan's pretty good, too. It's astounding, I think. I think it is, first off, it's one of the prettiest fantasy films ever filmed. Mm. It's beautifully colorful, 
wonderfully realized. Uh, the cast is fantastic. Jason Isaacs plays Hook in this version, and he's easily the most malevolent Hook we've ever had. Yeah, he's, 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 he's a good Captain Hook. Yeah, and he, and he knows how to play malevolent while also being charming and dashing, but like, there's this incredible bit at the end of the movie where uh, Hook... Uh, is able to get some uh, fairy dust for himself so he can fly. And his happy thoughts are things like puppy blood. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He just starts yelling that out as he's sword fighting fan. It's amazing. Flight in this movie looks as good as Flight has ever looked in a film. When I see, like, Superman in a movie, this is how I want him to be. I just want the laws of physics to not apply. And Peter Pan, just the way he'll, like, he'll be floating and, like, if he, like, reacts to you and recoils, he, like, leaps 20 feet back in the air. Mm. Just as a natural instinct. It's just, they created a flight that felt natural and yet completely unnatural at the same time. The score is so unbelievably magical that even though this movie, which bombed, I was going to say, I, I don't recall this one being a big bomb. It wasn't the biggest bomb ever, but it cost $130 million and it only made 122 So it did not even... Uh, at, that I'm didn't not sure make, if that quite qualifies. I think that qualifies, like, man, because you got to remember, that's not including marketing or anything like that. This movie mm. bombed. Um, how many people talk about it? You know, the only thing that like came out of this movie genuinely successful is the incredibly wonderful magical score by a really underrated as far as I'm concerned, composer James Newton Howard. Mm. And his magical Peter Pan entering Neverland music was co-opted by Disney for their Disneyland commercials. Because if you want to sell how magical something is, you use the music from this Universal Pictures film. It's not even one of theirs. That's how fucking great the score is. Um... It understands the characters, it understands the inherent sadness of it. The scene where uh, Hook is searching for Peter Pan and he finds uh, Peter and Wendy like dancing in the woods, like kind of like slow dancing, and it's kind of like a bit of an awakening for them. And Hook realizes that while he hates Peter Pan, he's also being left behind. Mm. Like if Peter Pan grows up, there's nothing left for Hook. And he has this like. It's almost apparent looking at their kid grow up, since he also plays Wendy's father, so that's actually kind of sweet and beautiful. But on a meta-narrative as well, it's the villain in a book realizing that the book might be over soon. Yeah. <laughs> and it's incredibly potent but, and powerful. Uh, my, yeah. my favorite element of this Peter Pan was actually it, it focused on the tragedy of Peter Pan. Exactly. As a character, that the fact that he cannot grow up is not a positive thing for him. Yeah, it's not, it's and, not uh, fun. It is and briefly, it's, And it's, it's about like... uh, Wendy... Uh, trying to bring adulthood out of him yeah. and not really being able to do it because he's sort of trapped by these magical circumstances. Yeah. And you get to, uh, and it's in those moments where you understand that being trapped as an adventure boy, always fighting pirates is not fun. Yeah. And, and it would actually hurt the heart after a while. Yeah. And so there's a wonder to this version of Peter Pan, but it also gives way to a genuine horror. Yeah. And, the final fight, which takes place over the course of sunset, so the lighting like dramatically changes throughout every single shot, uh, is just this incredible masterwork of um, editing and lighting and production design, and I love it to pieces. Uh, the the creatures look wonderful. Space has never looked prettier. When they fly to Neverland, they fly through the universe, and all the <laughs> planets are the wrong sizes in the in the background. And it's fucking amazing. Um. I find this movie magical and transportive in a way that I find very few fantasy films. And I think it's also deeply intelligent, very emotional, wonderfully Mm. performed. 
Uh, and it pisses me off that this is not well known. I've had to like explain to people that this movie exists, That's and they think true. I'm talking about Finding Neverland because it came out around the same time. That's true. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it was kind of overshadowed by Finding Neverland a little bit, which I think came out um, first, which probably didn't help. Yeah, uh, it, it's it it's a, a charming, wonderful version, and given how many Peter Pan movies we've had, it's one of the better ones. Oh, it's at least one of them. We're, I think we're, it's the best, but... we we keep going back to Peter Pan, and it just never never quite works out. Yeah. Um, Here's hope that here's hoping that the uh, the same team that did Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, will do something <laughs> fun with their horror version of Peter Pan, Nightmare Neverland. I mean, they're gonna make. He kidnaps kids, man. It's pretty mm. straightforward. Oh, actually, I was wrong. Fighting Neverland came out after this. Weird. Mm. We would have thought this would have had more attention, but oh well. Anyway, mm. real bummer. I love this movie to pieces. And we're at our number one. We are. Um, my number one uh, is. Uh, oh wait, is this your? You have number. Wait, yeah, what was I'm, your number I'm two? down to my number one. What my was number, number two is oh, it was the, West Side Story. Was West Side Story. Forgot to write it down. My BFG. Um, yeah, there are great filmmakers who occasionally hit a wall. They make a movie that tanks so hard it kind of makes them question their own place in in the Hollywood firmament. Yeah. Um, I think the most famous story is probably when uh, Kurosawa made Dodeska Den. Yeah. Uh, which was this um, weirdly. Like a Technicolor film, like he's shooting color for the first time. He's trying to tell this story of people living in this this shanty town. They had to paint the mud to make it mud colored. Like Kurosawa was, he might have been a little bit out of his element, and it tanked. It tanked so hard that it threw him into this like horrible depression. Mm. And it took making um, Dersu Uzala mm. to kind of bring him out of it. You know, Great kind movie, of Dersu, left that. Japan and made a movie in Russia, and you know, made a made a, an excellent picture. Um, Scorsese has been through this numerous times. <laughs> he's made a movie, it tanked, and he started to question his own sanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York yeah. did that for Which him. It's actually a good movie. I think it's no, there's, it's there's, not. I've rewatched um, it recently. There's some really bad miscasting in it. We've dealt with that a lot. Otherwise, I think it's really yeah, good. Um, Scorsese uh, for hooked up with Leonardo DiCaprio, and I wish he hadn't because uh, <laughs> keeps putting him in these movies where he's just not fit for these roles. He's um, like He's great in The Wolf of Wall Street. Wall Street. I think he's good in The Departed. And he's good in The Departed. Yeah. yeah. I like The Aviator more than you, but it just kind of pushes my he, buttons. I, I suppose so. And uh, because he likes making movies about movies, because he's into movies. He's mm-hmm. into movie preservation. And it, one of his bigger bombs is about movie preservation. I'm talking about Hugo. Oh, that's uh, right. That was a bomb, wasn't it? It, it? Yeah. It's a weird bomb. It's a weird bomb. Yeah. But, you know, th- this is a movie, This is a list of really ambitious failures, isn't it? Yeah. And, um uh, I was actually going to mention King of Comedy. King of Comedy oh, kind yeah. of brought him down, and Ooh. it was After Hours, I think, that brought him back out again. And ironically, those um, are both brilliant films. <laughs> the King of Comedy is great. I've not seen King of Comedy. You really and I, and I recently it. saw After Hours for the first time. Oh, well, dude, um, it's great, right? I, 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 I had to sort of sit with it for a second, but yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a mean it's, movie. It starts but to get really out of my, yeah. uh, kind of getting into my skin now. But um, yeah, Hugo uh, was based on... It, it was his... Is Scorsese's attempt to do a a YA fiction novel mm-hmm. and be a 3D movie with like CGI effects, which was not something he was kind of he was used to doing. Uh, for a while, it feels like wait a minute, he's just playing with the new toys. All the old filmmakers wanted to play with the new toys. Sp- even Spielberg did it with mm-hmm. Tintin. He wanted to make a motion capture mm-hmm. animated film. Ray Player One as well. And yeah, so he he was playing with sort of new techniques. What yeah. what can you do? Uh, 
3D was kind of hip thanks to uh, Avatar mm. and some bigger productions tried to shoot in 3D. And I think feel I feel like Hugo was like a reaction to Avatar. Can I make the effects movie? But Scorsese doesn't want to make that kind of effects movie. He doesn't just want to make a generic adventure, adventure movie adventure. in so, space. So he makes yeah. this quaint period piece about a kid who lives in the ceiling of a train station uh-huh. who is friends with this kooky old magician who uh, like uh, makes like music boxes and he's this old grump and we, we want to talk to Georges this uh, was played by Ben Kingsley and he's being stalked around by this comedic keystone cop uh, character played by Sasha Baron Cohen and he befriends a young girl and mm. they have these sort of, it, it's this kind of whimsical it's a children's novel like from a children's like a children's book, yeah. book from like a previous generation yeah and it's it's based on a children's book, by the way, called "The Invention of Hugo Cabret." Yeah, uh, which was published in twenty seven. Two, I'm sorry, two thousand and seven. Two thousand seven, so but it's it, not that old. But, but it, it feels old. It feels like the kind of children's novel, like written in nineteen thirty. It feels like um, something I would have read when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So all of those elements are are kind of playful and whimsical, and uh, he has this clockwork automaton that he want he hopes to resurrect someday. This mm. this young His father Hugo, built it, but yeah. it never quite worked. Yeah, yeah. Now he's homeless, but he still has this automaton. Uh, and over the course of the movie, they begin to realize that this guy, Georges, this curmudgeonly old magician, is actually Georges Millier, the legendary filmmaker and some might say inventor of modern special effects. Mm-hmm. Certainly a pioneer uh, of special yeah, effects. A, yeah. a, a, an important pioneering filmmaker. And yeah. he did, he, Have you ever seen A Trip to the Moon? Mm-hmm. That was Georges Millier. That was one George of the most Millier, iconic yeah. films ever produced. Yeah, that... that image of the moon with the rocket it's on right. that's George that, Miller. that invented the idea of doing a countdown to a rocket launch nasa stole that <laughs> from from this filmmaker yeah. uh and over the course of the movie these kids begin to investigate who this guy is where his movies might be mm-hmm. and the to to <laughs> to scorsese the ultimate tragedy the loss of these movies yeah. A lot of George Millier's movies are lost. They just all yeah. of the prints have been destroyed. Yeah, the celluloid um, was used, I think, to make guitar picks in some cases. Uh, guitar like... guitar picks. In the movie they point out that it was used uh as the polymers in women's shoes. Yeah. Like they they melted down uh the, the film strips and melted yeah. them into hu- women's shoes because that was more valuable at the time. Content. Um, this is what happens when you see movies as content. content. You can just destroy them and feel nothing about it because it's just stuff taking up space in your warehouse. Disney <laughs> and Warner Brothers. And and, uh, and of course, because and this else. is a Scorsese movie, this is about these two young children coming to realize <laughs> the glories of physical cinema and the importance of film archiving. So, mm-hmm. of course, Scorsese put all of his own interests into that. Of course he did. Strange movie. Very strange uh, but really visually dynamic, really mm-hmm. enthused. I love that even as Scorsese, you know, he, he's approaching ninety. He's getting up there. He is. He is mm. not as young as he used to he's, be. He's, he's no spring chicken. He's eighty. He, oh, is he? Is he he's, he's eighty. He's, he's, he's 80. exactly oh, eighty. Me. I thought yeah. he was older than that. Yeah. I apologize. Apologies. He's to been around for a while. You got to. You got to start young. Still vital, however. And oh, what yeah. I was going to say is, however old he gets. His films are just as energetic as they've always been. Yeah, that's the thing that's amazing. Yeah, like, like you see, like the, the, the Clint Eastwood, like kind of calmed down over the years mm-hmm. and make quieter movies. Scorsese gets making wilder movies. Yeah, it's he, uh, really weird. It's awesome. He's even said it's like uh, in interviews, like it's a pity I'm eighty because I want to do more now. I know. Like now I know more. And I don't have the energy to do it. It's like, but but you're still doing it. <laughs> still making these energetic, he's, exciting movies. He's he's gonna 
die while making a movie. I, yeah. and, and I think that's... It's going to be an action picture. Like it's gonna be a... <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that he... sounds dour, but I actually think... It's like my, my father, who died uh, of, of cancer, um, he always said that he would have rather died uh, riding his motorcycle. Yeah. That doing the thing he loved. Like, that was actually a good thing. So I meant that in a sweet way. Yeah. Sorry, it sounded weird. Um, yeah. No, just... I, I, I'm a film critic. You know you know how I want to die? I want to yeah. watch a movie so bad it kills me. That's 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 yeah. my dream. It's like, the, this and, movie is so... I get, and I just die in my seat. Like, given yeah. the shit we watch, I think we'll get there one day. <laughs> there are some times where I felt like I was close. <laughs> I like Hugo a lot. I, I don't love Hugo. I think that Hugo might have been a film I would have loved when I was a kid. Yeah. But I think watching it now, I appreciate I appreciate that Martin Scorsese hacked the studio system in order to make a movie about art film preservation. Uh, a movie, I love that. A, 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 chill, a kid-friendly movie uh-huh. in 3D with some interesting visual effects about film preservation. Mm-hmm. An Oscar-winning film, a one best visual effects. Yeah. It was yeah. nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. And you know what? It's a good movie. It's hardly my favorite Scorsese film, but it's it's, it's, my, it's lovely. It's my favorite. It's a good pick. It's my favorite of Scorsese's bombs. I'll say that. And I feel yeah. like when interesting filmmakers really stretch and make a bomb, they're still making something interesting. Yeah. Usually, they're making something even beyond yeah. the inter- interesting stuff they ordinarily make. Uh, you Just don't like get, Spielberg. The, the one thing I'll say is you don't get to give me crap for picking Peter Pan because uh, Hugo uh-huh. uh, made one hundred and eighty-five point eight million dollars, and it cost one hundred and seventy. No, so that's still it technically wasn't. a bomb because, it, oh, because making you know its what? money back is still kind of a bomb. But know, technically, that broke your rule. I know it was notorious, but you're right; it did break my rule. Yeah, it it cost them studio money. Uh-huh. that's not deniable. It's, okay, it did lose money, th- but not a lot. Not yeah, a- not as much as you not as much as you assumed. Oh wow! So we neither maybe both it's of not, us should have done our research not, a little bit better. Beautiful creatures yeah. also kind of was in the same boat as well. It, you know, it kind of cracked even, but still lost a lot of money. Uh, so just to be fair. But regardless, yeah, it's considered a bomb, and it's a really good movie, and I like that pick. Uh, earlier in the episode, we talked about uh, Tim Burton's Dumbo. Uh-huh. And how he made a film within the studio system about why working for a studio system is awful and the worst thing you could ever do, and seriously, fuck the people who financed my movie. <laughs> and I respect him for that. I think uh, if you're going to make a movie within a studio system, make a movie about why what you're doing is terrible, warning other people not to make the same mistakes you've made. Mm. The Wachowskis have done this three times. (laughs) (laughs) All for Warner Brothers, and every single one of them lost money. And they are my amounts of money too. And right? they're my three-way tie because they're basically the same film in some regards. So you're talking Speed about Speed Racer, Jupiter, Speed Racer, Jupiter Ascending, Cloud Atlas. Uh, no, because Cloud Atlas isn't really about that. It, yeah. I'm actually, and also I'm Which, not as high on that movie as other people. Uh, well, Matrix, Res- bomb, Matrix Resurrections. Yeah. Which is my least favorite of the three, mm. but I appreciate its cantankerous message. Uh, the Wachowskis, and, and that was just Lana, or was it? That was just. I think it was just Lana. It might have, was it Lana or Lily, actually? Right now, I can't remember. Hang on. It, it was only one of them. Like, yeah. Like, 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 one of them split. couldn't be bothered. Yeah. Lana. It was Lana. It was L- Lana. Lily, yeah. Lily was like, I'm not fucking doing it. Fuck you. I'm not... I can't yeah, I'm be, not coming I, back to I'm not more, going back to those assholes. Matrix, yeah. And Lana was like, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to make a movie that literally says Warner Brothers is shit. And they do. They call out Warner Brothers by name. Mm-hmm. Because the plot... I'll start with Matrix Resurrections, uh, which came out during the pandemic, which... 
you know, it, it, it hurt its chances at making its money back no matter what. I think it would have been a bomb regardless. I think it would have been rough. It still made $160 million, but it cost $190. Yeah. So... Was that expensive? It was very expensive. Uh, the Matrix Resurrections, obviously, it's a sequel to the Matrix trilogy, which the original classic, I think justifiably called a classic, uh, daring, bold, ambitious, impressive sci-fi action intelligentsia picture, uh, yielded two ambitious but not as good sequels. And uh, with... Nostalgia on the rise with this IP just sitting there laying dormant. Warner Brothers basically said, we're going to make a Matrix movie whether you participate or not. So Lana Wachowski made a movie about Neo in the real world who has created a video game franchise that Warner Brothers now owns. And Warner Brothers says, I know you're working on your new personal projects original intellectual property, your own ideas, trying to bring something new into the world. But we're going to reboot your original popular thing, whether you like it or not, so now you have to make this thing. And then he starts losing his grasp on reality and starts thinking the Matrix is real. And maybe it is. And also maybe it isn't. Um, the Matrix Resurrections is about how a corporation drives you mad. <laughs> And forces yeah. you to revisit your earlier work, your earlier successes, whether you like to or not. Bringing with it what you now know. And the film is actually very mature about a lot of the themes of the original series. And how uh, you know this sort of corporate takeover of the Matrix as an entity uh, has now radically changed the way we view it. And the characters trapped within it. Mm. They're not trapped in there by like... You know, just sort of general concept of technology taking over our lives. The technology is controlled by assholes. And so it's about the assholes now. Uh, there's stuff I don't like in the movie. I, th I find it frustrating that um, uh, Keanu Reeves, who was doing all this incredible choreography for the John Wick movie, uh, his his one move in this entire film is just shoving people not, away with a force fight, push. Not fighting at all. Yeah, it's, that's a little disappointing considering everything else that came before. But on the other hand fucking with our expectations and saying screw you for expecting anything better is kind of the raison d'etre of the movie and I love it for that um, uh, Jupiter Ascending uh, is about uh, uh, an immigrant woman who has nothing financially who learns that because of a quirk in her DNA she has inherited the planet Earth and so she's it's like a alien DNA yeah, yeah so it's kind of like the princess diaries uh, if uh, Mila Kunis was Anne Hathaway. If Julie uh, uh, Andrews, if Julie Andrews uh, was uh, a sociopath, uh, and if Hector Elizondo was a hot werewolf, and, and also the the country of what, what Gen Genosha, Genovia, 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 I think it's Genovia. It, and if right. and if that was like the most corrupt aristocracy in the world, it, yeah, it's basically like she she she. Meets all of these like different family members who run this corporation because genetically she just happens to be a member of them. And she learns from every single one of them just how absolutely horrible and selfish and corrupt billionaires are. Yeah. Uh, and each one of them has another shocking and terrible lesson to teach her. Uh, Channing Tatum follows her around like a good lapdog with floating rollerblades. Awesome. Uh, Eddie Redmayne plays basically Baron Harkonnen. But with like 
the the if if Sting in Dune had ascended to the throne, here's what he would have done. Uh, it's people called the performance over the top. Yes, kind of the point. He's doing it on purpose. It's an over the top character. He's divorced from reality. That's the fun of it. The movie is derivative of a lot of different sci-fi. You God knows you can see Brazil all over this thing. But it's also got a lot of fun ideas. Terry of its Gilliam own. is in the movie. He is. He's literally in the movie. I forgot about that for a second. Um. But regardless, um, it's actually like a bold attempt to use modern blockbuster sci-fi filmmaking to do basically what Barbie is doing with feminism, but do it with economic theory and try to explain yeah. class warfare and class divisions and um, you know, economic inequality uh, in a fun action-adventure way. And it works. I just wish more people had seen it. And then, of course, there's Speed Racer, which... Has a pretty big cult. The studio still hasn't embraced it. Mm. It's not like we're getting like a big reboot of it anytime soon. It cost them a lot of money. I, but I, feel, I feel like we said earlier that one's been rescued. I've that's, mostly that's, been uh, rescued. Again, this that's more your criteria than mine uh, because I feel like this because the studio doesn't admit that that's a great movie and doesn't try to make money off of it. Mm. They think it's still a bomb. I still think it technically qualifies, so I'm letting it in. But it, it less needs to be said about it. Yeah. It's incredibly visually gorgeous. It's one of the most colorful films ever produced. Uh, it is also about how selling out to a huge corporation is the absolute worst thing you could ever do. Thank you for this money, Warner Brothers. Uh, and honestly, even though, like, I watched it, I rewatched it for this, just to make sure, does it actually hold up that good? And, like, the first half hour, when, like, you're getting used to it, and the character work isn't as strong, the child actors aren't great... Uh, and some of the, you know, a lot of the movie is done in front of CG backgrounds. In fact, I dare say most of it. Um, uh, some of the, the the sort of compositing isn't as great at the beginning of the movie. But by the end of it, it's exhilarating. It's one of the most exciting, wonderful action movies ever produced. And the, the ending is just breathtakingly thrilling. It's a great, 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 just sort of... What do, we, what do we call it? Uh, if you want to learn editing techniques and how to like build emotion, watch the final race in Speed Racer. It'll just dazzle you. Uh, so I think their whole trilogy of fuck you Warner Brothers uh, <laughs> that ended up costing Warner Brothers shit tons of money, and yet Warner Brothers keeps going back to them, never learning their lesson uh -huh. that the Wachowskis are trying to explain to people how to destroy corporations from within, and we're doing it right now. <laughs> Gotta give him credit. Gotta give him credit. Um, I, I'm, I know it's sort of poor form to read other critics' reviews, but I yeah. love this review by Jay Hoberman of the original uh, Speed mm -hmm. Racer movie. Mm -hmm. um, just describing what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, he says, Gaudier than a Hindu temple roof. Louder than the Las Vegas night. Speed Racer is cathedral of glitz. The movie projects a Candyland topography under lava lamp skies and Hello Kitty clouds. Part Middle Earth, part mental breakdown. Using a Beyond Hollywood color scheme wherein Ultra Turquoise is the new black. <laughs> uh, Ultra Turquoise is a great name. Yeah, Ultra Turquoise is the new black is what I took from that one. Um... Yeah, uh, I, I love the visual dare, uh, daringness of Speed mm -hmm. Racer. It predicted the way blockbusters were going to be made and the way they looked. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at something like Guardians of the Galaxy, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, we, we're just there now. Mm -hmm. Like, that was supposed to be a, real, a style exercise in 2008. Now it's just the way blockbusters look. Mm -hmm. 
I feel like Guardians of the Galaxy is a lot less interesting than something like Speed Racer, which mm. is like this. I don't, I don't know if Guardians of the film. Galaxy is the film I'd pick on, but yeah, yeah. there's definitely a lot of movies that have this like we to, exist to in front of a green one. screen, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we're and we're barely hiding it. Yeah. But the thing is, is that the, the they are actually leaning into it. Mm-hmm. The artificiality is the point, and we're gonna make it look as beautifully false as we can. It's style. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I I have the Wachowskis just on a line <laughs> on, on my. <laughs> On my honorable mentions. Because... That's basically what I did. The, the yeah. Matrix is a big hit. Bound is an indie darling. People mm-hmm. like the Wachowskis movies in general. Mm. They're rarely successful. Yeah, it's they, kind of... The Matrix don't... is the aberration. But it was yeah. such a huge deal. They, they've been kind of coasting on yeah. it. And those sequels, yeah. you know, they're, I don't think they're very good, but uh, they, they were big hits. They made um, money. They made money. They weren't as big as they hoped. Mm. But yeah, there, there's a reason why they wanted to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I'm yeah. not a big fan of the fourth Matrix movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I like here's what I like about the fourth Matrix. Uh, I like that the fact that because here, here's what what's going on. We keep going back to these old movies, you know, Indiana Jones and mm-hmm. Star Wars, and we're bringing back all these characters that we saw in the past, but they're all played by much older actors now. Mm-hmm. What happens when these like warmongering hero characters grow old? They become kind of like sad and worn out. Yeah. So I like it when we catch up with these people and oh shit, this is not a fun life anymore. Yeah. And I like I that everyone catch... hated that for Star Wars. Like, no, Luke should be exactly the same sucks he's, he's old now he sucks he's seen some shit what do you expect the war started again he doesn't care anymore it's yeah, just he's, gonna lose it burnt out yeah. what, uh, did, what did every jedi who ever taught him teach him when the going gets tough hide for decades and let the next generation deal with it fine it's fine I, last jedi is fine uh and now we catch up with neo we catch up with john enderton or john anderson mr An- anderson mr anderson yeah. which is constantly he's being dead named isn't he yeah, l- yeah, it's l- not l- subtle. A l- l- little bit of a symbol there. Um, I-, I like that he's just now sad and unhappy. He's just a mm-hmm. desk jockey. And there's some wonderful scenes where he gets to meet up with the Carrion Moss character in the real world. Mm-hmm. And they just have coffee and they talk yeah, and they have a, they have like a romance like real adults. Yeah. You can tell and, like that's the movie Lana wants to make. It's yeah. just a movie about people dealing with and, stuff. And uh, there's this sort of, these people keep on rushing in and handing him pills, like, yeah, the Matrix is real, man, you need to take these pills. I would have loved if he finally, like, snaps, like, fine, fine, I I don't understand any of this, but I'll take these pills. Mm -hmm. And nothing happens. (laughs) And the Matrix was really just a fantasy, and he's trapped in this corporate wasteland. That would have been a much stronger film, and spoken larger to uh, the themes of what the Wachowskis were originally getting at. I maintain that that is still a valid interpretation of the film. I suppose so, but I, I want to see a Matrix movie without any fantasy elements. Yeah. Where it's all just the real world and the Matrix is fake. That would have been a good double bang. Now, I understand people pay money. They mm-hmm. want to see a Matrix film. They want to see Matrix shit. Mm-hmm. Most people flying through the air and all the, the science fiction kung fu stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't like the science fiction kung fu stuff this time yeah. around. We've had I don't think Lana likes it very much either because no. it's just not where the movie is. No, and they yeah. spent all, these, all this money on making these big, expensive stunt spectaculars when... Clearly, the filmmaker's heart wasn't in it. Yeah, like she just doesn't care. Yeah. Anyway, so so yeah. I I I appreciate that you chose it, mm-hmm. but I feel like if you were to zero in on like an interesting Wachowski bomb, I would have gone with just Jupiter Ascending. I I think they're of a piece, and yeah. I think the reason why I'm picking them is because of how kind of punk rock they are within the system. Yeah. But fair enough, and you can kind of just pick any one of them, really, whichever one you like best. That's my number one. There you go. Um. 
real fast, uh, let's uh, go through our uh, our top tens. So everyone has them all in one place. Uh, Whitney's top ten in order, uh, in order of which they were listed, not you know order of quality. Uh, Mystery Men, Hudson Hawk, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, Mother, The Last Duel, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Pop star, never stop, never stopping. I still wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> uh, Babylon, West Side Story, and the BFG, a tie. Uh, and Hugo. And my picks were White House Down, Dutch, Popeye, Roar, David Lynch's Dune, Tron Legacy, Can't Stop the Music, Beautiful Creatures, PJ Hogan's Peter Pan, and the triumvirate of Speed Racer, Jupiter Ascending, and The Matrix Resurrections. Uh, Whitney, uh, do you have any uh, uh, runners-up you want to... A couple. I I just wrote down some of uh, some films that bombed, some of which have been rescued. I I mentioned the Wachowskis. Um, uh, In uh, 1997, Adrian Lin did a a sort of screen-accurate version of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. Yeah. Uh, That was hugely controversial, as as the book was, and as the previous movie was as well. Um, for obvious reasons, just because of the subject matter. Um, but I, I feel like that was sort of a, a fascinating counterpoint to Kubrick's adaptation. Uh, Titan A.E., Don Bluth's science yeah, fiction movie, pick. was uh, cost way too much money to make, so it lost mm. a lot of money when they released yeah. it. But it was trying to make like an action-adventure animated movie at a time when no one the, was doing yeah, that. Yeah, and that wasn't yeah. a thing yet. Yeah, um, People like to point to Treasure Planet, another big bomb, yeah. as sort of like a, a key as, into like getting sci-fi action-adventure. Don Bluth did it like yeah. several years prior. Um, was it prior? I yeah, remember. Titan AE was the 90s. Or no, it was 2000, I think. And yeah, they were Treasure pretty close. I mean, like I'm curious. Titan AE was, was 2000, and then Treasure Planet... It's like 2004. 2002. 2002, all right. You're right, you're right. Um, I'm very fond of Turning Red, because it was released straight to Disney+. Plus. It lost mm-hmm. a bunch of money. Yeah, that's a great movie. Um, I, I like Jump in the Holograms, despite myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's lovely. It's a couple of movies that have been rescued, like Fight Club was rescued. The yeah. Shawshank Redemption was most certainly rescued. Oh, yeah. The definitely. Iron Giant was certainly rescued. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was rescued oh yeah i guess that was um, bomb yeah and ed wood was rescued yeah ed wood made no money was first released uh, yeah. a movie that a really fun action comedy fant- fantastical action comedy that i like that still has sort of the stigma of its money loss hanging around it is last action hero yeah um it's, great it's, idea it's, it's, a, it's a decent fun movie uh yeah. it, it's not you know cinema classic but it Mm. It's not the the disaster. It's a multiverse um, movie before we had one of those. And I was looking up like big bombs online, and this is one that I didn't realize had lost that much money. But Jacques Odiard's The Sisters Brothers. Oh yeah, that was a, that back, was a flop. Um, yeah, yeah, that like this really kind of interesting, quirky western comedy, but it's like really sort of grounded about the relationship yeah. between these two uh, two yeah. brothers living out in the old west. Well, it's it's like you um, know in Pulp Fiction how like there's that opening bit with like two hitmen who have funny conversations while they do their job. Yeah. It's that in the old west that and the it, old that's west. the whole movie. And, and, and it's John yeah. C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix. And it's really funny. And, I like and that they're movie. they're just really chatter yeah and like the plot doesn't really matter. It's just these characters and their chatter yeah. and the world they live in and it's really really great. Yeah. I didn't realize it was this huge bomb as I well. Just, I actually hadn't thought of that one either. That's a good I, one. I really love the Sisters Brothers. Yeah. Okay. That it? That's it, yeah. All right. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to cherry pick because I had uh, quite a few on here. Uh, the Mortal Engines, as we discussed. Uh, breathtaking visually. Story-wise, just okay. Very, very close to my top ten, though. Uh, let's see. The Hudsucker Proxy was actually a huge bomb yeah. for the Coen brothers, and I think it's delightful. 
I think it's actually just a wonderful screwball comedy, and it deserves uh, more credit. Uh, I put Treasure Planet on my list. Okay. Um, I beautifully animated, uh, really wonderful stuff in it. I think it's underappreciated. Uh, a movie that is maybe not great, but a lot of fun and deserved better uh, was Hard Rain. Where Christian Slater was a uh, was a uh, um, uh, they were playing that on the screen the last time I went to Cinephile Video. Nice because it was it was the same weekend as that big hurricane we just had here in oh, Los yeah. Angeles. So oh, they decided that's to have like, bad bad weather yeah. movies. Up on uh, the, yeah, the Hard Rain is about like a bank heist that takes place in the middle of a hurricane while a town is being flooded, and it's incredibly like visually difficult to produce. So they just did it for real, and it cost a ton of money, and doesn't really justify that, but it is good. Um, I really quite like the Alec Baldwin uh, superhero movie, The Shadow. I think it's very, was, very was fun. That bomb it was a bomb. Right. It was a bomb. Uh, speaking of uh, superhero movies that bombed, Tank Girl is delightful <laughs> and uh, absolutely I mean, the, the, the movie's better. The movie's chaotic and it's badly written, but I love the characters. I think it works. Uh, Rustler's Rhapsody, starring Tom Berenger, is a cowboy comedy. It came out around the same time as Three Amigos. Nobody noticed. I think it's actually kind of brilliant, and I came very close to making my list. I already mentioned Vibes. Uh, the Frighteners was a big box office bomb for Peter Jackson, it's but true. I actually really like its whole vibe. Uh, it's kind of Ghostbusters, kind of kid-friendly, but also entirely too dark and frightening for that, which means it would have been perfect for me as a kid. It was supposed to be a Tales from the Crypt movie. Exactly. They, they, re, they reworked it at the last minute. Yeah. Uh, Joe Dante's Explorers, which was kind of taken away from him, and yet still, I think, is actually very charming and inventive. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Caddyshack 2 was a big bomb, and you and I are the only two people who like that movie, but by including the director. and uh, we, we like it better than the we, director. We, we did a whole podcast saying that we thought Caddyshack 2 was, you know, not amazing, but pretty good. Better than the original. And the director of Caddyshack 2 emailed us to tell us we were wrong. No, my movie stinks. You guys are nuts. <laughs> One of my favorite moments, just my whole life. Um, let's see here. The Missing Link. The stop motion oh, the, animated the film. film. Yeah, yeah, that was a bomb, and that's a shame, because that movie's adorable. Uh, Man That's, on yeah. The, yeah, Man on the Moon, the Jim Carrey, Andy Kaufman right. biopic, huge bomb, shame, very I, very good. I, you know what? For Missing Link, I feel like mm. uh, the casting of Zach Galifianakis kind of undid that movie. Who can tell? Well, you can't tell, but yeah. the, the way they characterized the Bigfoot, mm. uh, like as this sort of neurotic guy, mm. uh, kind of worked against that film. I, I guess think I if, if they had made it like a little bit more of a. I'm not exactly sure. A little yeah. bit more of like a, a broad, funnier character. All right. All right, and my last one, and this is a this is a bad movie, but I find it enjoyably bad, like really entertaining. Uh, Geostorm, <laughs> uh, which Talked is a, about Moonfall already. Yeah, Geo, Geostorm's another one of those. If you, if you if you thought Moonfall was too plausible, Geostorm. Uh, is definitely the movie for you. It is about mm. uh, a space station that can control the weather on Earth, and of course it gets weaponized, and it starts attacking the Earth with weather, and it is blissfully stupid, and mm. a genuinely good time. I have a blast watching that ridiculous film. My, my favorite part about Geostorm is, I could only think of the car. Oh yeah, You might not remember the, I think the, it's because the, the, the line is defunct now, but Geo is a, yeah. a GM uh, imprint and they made uh, the Geo Tracker and the Geo Metro. I drove mm. a Geo Metro for a couple of years. Uh, cheap, lightweight cars, got really good gas mileage, cute, cute cars, mm -hmm. uh, popular for a while. And their sedan was called the Storm. The Geostorm. Oh, I forgot about that. That is funny. <laughs> so so somebody comes out called Geostorm. I think, did yeah. somebody show them a picture of the car? Yeah. 
And of course, I had a few on my list that were like, you know, as you said, reclaimed. Mm. Uh, Starship Troopers, I think, is uh, the, for, the studio still doesn't make money off of it, but I think it's really it's, acclaimed. It's held in high yeah. regard now. Uh, same thing with uh, Disney's Newsies. Their film about why unions going on strike is the best thing people can do, uh, which was a bomb in theaters, turned into a hit Broadway show. Yeah. Uh, and now, of course, Disney does not believe in that at all, apparently. Ah. Uh, Night of the Hunter was a huge bomb when it came out. Uh, Todd Browning's Freaks was a huge bomb when it came out. Oh, God, uh, yes. Willy oh, Wonka and oh, the Chocolate Factory was a huge bomb when it came I love, out. I love Freaks. Freaks mm-hmm. is wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, like, there's, there's some famous movies out there that just initially really quite tanked. But, again, a lot of them have been reclaimed. Duck Soup was a huge bomb when it came out. Uh, so, yeah. Duck There's Soup some... was a bomb. Oh yeah, yeah. It was not. It was not considered a particularly good film when it came out, but by God, mm. became a classic. Uh, it, it was just too weird for its time. It was the pop star of its day. Um, but anyway, that is it for the Iron List. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons, uh, without whom we would not be able to do the show. And also, our patrons get to vote for the next episode of the Iron List. And for the next episode of the Iron List, we're going to do something a little different. Usually we present you uh, with four or five topics to choose from. Uh, This time, on the Patreon page for this episode, which you can only access if you are a patron, and even $1 a month you can access it, Mm. we'd like you to leave us a suggestion (laughs) for an iron list. It could be something we've put on a poll before. It could be something totally new. And we will go through your suggestions, and we will choose from those which ones will go on a poll. We're outsourcing. We're giving you the option to come up with the idea yourself. I know some of you have come up to us with ideas in the past. If you're a patron, put them on the Patreon page. We'll only look at them there. And we will go through those and we'll decide which ones we think we can turn into a great episode. And we will put them on a poll and we will do whatever episode wins that poll. So uh, when the episode goes live, just leave the comment there. We'll look at them at at the picks in a few days, maybe a week. Put up the poll. Do it as fast as we can. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for joining us. If you want to talk about your own favorite box office bombs, or maybe we're entirely wrong about some of the movies that we talked about, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Send us an actual... Oh, gosh, I'm talking too long. Three and a half hours, man. Send us an actual physical letter to the uh, Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Whew. We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. We're on B Sky at Critic Acclaim. We're on all the social medias at William Bibiani and at Whitney Seibold. And we are done. We are so tired. Thank you, everybody. Once again, that is the list. Okay.